0: Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we're going to talk about something that is unfortunately prominent, common, maybe even ravishing our communities. Is That's the living the lavish life. Living the dream. Flaunting your wealth. For example... People flying private planes, being embarrassed to fly commercial jets, and building homes larger than anyone else. As if it's a competition to have a larger house. We're going to talk about men's only vacations and quote-unquote business trips by the men to Vegas, Atlantic City, and other locations. Conventions and conferences away from home. What can happen when a Husband Travels. We are going to have a number of guests on the show to talk about the mitzvahs of what's going out there. Hashkafa, how should we think about what's going on and how should we readjust? And the halachas of these various activities. And again, we will get back at the end of the show to the mitzvahs in a little bit more graphic detail. We are going to start off with Moshe Kahler who's the founder and CEO of the Markal Group, who will talk about what he sees is going on in the Jewish community. He is from the East Coast of the United States and then we will move off to Yerushalayim to speak with the great Rosh Yeshiva Rabbi Chaim Tzvi Center the Rosh Yeshiva Yeshiva Satorah who is very involved in this parsha, getting many questions and dealing with many issues from his Talmidim and others and then we will dive into all the relevant halachas of everything that we're talking about on this show and more we'll be speaking with Rabbi Moshe Walter who is a great posek. he is an author he is a rav in Silver Spring, Maryland and at the end of the show we will get back to the mitzvah of what's going on, and we will speak with somebody who we're going to call Nick. He is uh, an Armenian Christian, and he's going to talk about his experiences, the dangers of drinking in the workplace, business trips, and the like. He does have a lot of experience with dealing with Orthodox Jews. We uh, could not find somebody who's Orthodox to really talk about the nitty-gritty of what is going on there in the Vegases and those various other locations of the world, so Nick was nice enough to come on and to really give us insights as to what's going on in general and what's going on in our community as well. Just a uh, quick clip from Nick, because it's going to be at the end of the show. So just to uh, give a little bit of, of a teaser as to what Nick is going to be speaking about.
1: Everything there is designed to reduce your inhibitions and your everyone's inhibitions are being reduced at the same time. And you're immersed in it from one, two, three, four, five days. Uh, the least fun thing in Las Vegas is when you go back to the hotel room, unless you're really tired, because what's going on in the hotel room? There's a television. There's some M&Ms that you can buy for $50 and your shower, your bed, and that's it. And once, usually when you go to bed, there's no live sports or anything on. So do people want to be in their room? No. Where do they want to be? Where all the lights and the excitement and the glitz and the glam and the small dresses and the big heels and the alcohol is flowing and then live music is on and the, it keeps you awake and you know, off you go. So I think that the, the intensity of temptation is greater. The number of temptation is far greater. And there's people that go there just to have a good time.
0: So based on that, Truth be told, every generation has its challenges. And uh, it seems that we have a, quite a large selection of challenges, but uh, most prominently it seems that dealing with the wealth, it, wealth is a tremendous bracha, but on the other hand, there's tremendous downside in wealth as well. So I just want to hear a, a quick clip from a she'er that the great Rav Ozban gave recently, the Rosh Hashiva of Tells in Riverdale, on our very issue.
2: We're sitting here now, and anybody with open eyes could see what happened, the bracha that the gave Claudius Yisrael is unbelievable. The shefetzal ge'efent geffen ha young chavret. There's nobody in this room that's 60, which I hope I'm right. Maybe there right, is, but I'm young people, young light, millionaires, hundreds of millions of dollars, deals, mices, Geschäften. Oh, you have to understand that. It's unprecedented in the history of Yisroel. There's a message here. There's an historian here. There's a, a message that the Abish is talking to us. And he foresaw it after the war. What's the, what is the test of this generation? That's the test.
0: Following up on that uh, concept, there's actually a Medris Tamchuma. It's a very powerful Medris, Parsha's Kisisa that stresses the importance of tzniyas, modesty, when it comes to living a lavish lifestyle. In fact, the Medrash there contrasts the first luchos that were given and the second set that was the lasting set, the permanent set of the luchos. And the Medrash says as follows, what was the difference? That the first set of luchos was destroyed while the second set was not. So the Medrash says, Haluchos are al It's because the first set of luchos they were given in a very public way. It was a public statement, was seen by all. The fi Bahem Accordingly, there was a ayn hara on them. And that led to their being broken. If you do it in a public way, that's not always the best way. Oftentimes, it's the least best way. On the other hand, when it comes to the second luchos, ha Baruch Hu says, There's nothing better than the modesty. given privately in a private way to Moshe Rabbeinu and the Medrash quotes the famous Pasuk ev Even when you're doing something that is very positive having a very positive impact on the world on Klal and the world it should be done in a modest way so when it comes to our challenge that Rev Osbon was talking about the excess wealth we have tremendous excessive wealth in this generation probably more than ever before. But the problem is the failure to use it in a proper way is leading to all types unfortunate And consequential issues, for example, some that we've already mentioned, the flying of private planes and building these huge houses. But what I hear is that there is actually widespread cocaine use. People don't know what to do with their money, they don't know what to do with their lives. Widespread cocaine use in certain parts of the yeshiva world. Extramarital affairs, extreme dishonesty in business in order to get more money. You know, in certain ways... We've really pushed the limits of what's mutter. And that's something, honestly, that we see through many generations. It's pushing the limits. But now, unfortunately, we're in the usser zone. We're in the prohibited zone. We're no longer talking about naval b'yashu satara, but simply naval. And something that, unfortunately, we don't talk a lot about is the slippery slope. It's when we start out on the path of doing something that would not be strictly speaking usher, but improper, ill advised. Unfortunately, it often leads to unanticipated consequences. Somebody very wise told me the following phrase, which is accurate in so many areas, and it goes as follows Until you find yourself at the bottom of the slope, you will always underestimate how slippery it is. One more time, until you find yourself at the bottom of the slope, you will always underestimate how slippery it is. Somebody was telling me the other day, just an example of what's going on there in a very yeshiva community, a very yeshiva man, and he wanted a personal trainer. So who did he find? With the permission of his wife, a female personal trainer who is in terrific shape. She's not dressing very tzanua, coming to his home. What's that going to lead to? Again, until you find yourself at the bottom of the slope, you will always underestimate how slippery it is. What comes to mind is an amazing vort by Rav Osner, the Shevet Alevi, it's told in the Sefer, Yados Alevi by his son. And Ravosner, he quoted the Gemara and Sanhedrin that says as follows, talking about the B'nos Moav, with the Yeshiva crowd of uh, Klali Yisro, with the, the best of the best. And the Gemara and Sanhedrin says that the Chet H'chil what was the problem? So the, the uh, Moab women, they brought them Stam Yenam. Stam it wasn't Asr at the time. Stam Yenam. Va'adayin ya'in shal It's still, Adayin, it wasn't prohibited to them. And the interesting point here that Ravozar focuses on is what does that mean? Va'adayin lo'neser. It was still, it wasn't Asr an yet. And he says as follows, what is Chazal being to us? What are they hinting out here? Is that B'nai Yishal knew very well that they were entering into a dangerous area. You're having wine with the non-Jewish women. That is a mirshol. Inevitably, that's the slippery slope that they will wind up where they don't anticipate. They were going to wind up where they didn't originally want to wind up. But the Chazal tell us that nonetheless, they said to themselves, but it's dying. But still, it's not user So we can do it. What's the problem? If it's not prohibited, it's mutter. And even though they knew it would be a mirchol in the future, but they said, it's not user and as long as it's not Aser, not a problem. And that's what Chazal are telling us. That's the Chorban Gadol. This is Rav Osner's words. Vizel Gadol kasher Adam yodei mirshal shari. When you know this is the greatest destruction. When you know something is a mirshal, a possible problem that will erupt and nonetheless you do it with the excuse that it's not in violation of the halacha. It's adayin lo It's still not prohibited. So I can do it. Obviously when there's a problem. When we anticipate a problem, even if it's not usur, don't do it. And obviously, that's the message to this individual. Hopefully, it's not more than one that has that female personal trainer. What's this going to lead to? Maybe it's a dying Lonesar, but certainly it's usur. I heard of great posik once. I don't remember the question that he was asked. I've said it on the show before. And his response was, even if it's mutter, it's still usur. We'd obviously say that in many areas, especially a female personal trainer. For a man, even if it's Mutter, even if it would be Mutter, I can't imagine, but even if it's Mutter, it's still Asser. And we're going to say the same thing when it comes to these trips, the men's trips to various locations, the business trips to Vegas and Atlantic City. The slippery slope, quote, applies. Where are we going to wind up in the end of the day? I just want to quote from a Ksav Sofer. The Ksav Sofer, it's not on this week's Barsha, he's harking back. Kain Hevel, Kain Kills Hevel. Kodesh Baruch says, you can come back, you can do tshuva. Very powerful words, that Pesach rovetz. That Khatas, that Yetzir Hora is waiting for you. It's waiting for you when you go out the door and says the Ksav Sofer impactfully strongly. He says when you're in your home and you have your routine, it's much easier to avoid sin. You wake up, you go to davening, you have your siddurim, you go to work, your wife is there to protect you. But when you leave the door to go on a trip, when you get out of your normal routine, that's when the Yates hara kicks in. And that is when the problems kick in as well. And that's what this Pesach is telling us. La Pesach, when you're going out of that door to go on that business trip to the men's club, the men's club vacation, that is where the Chatas Roves, that is where the Yetzir Hara is waiting to trip us up. It is almost inevitable. And now we're going to go on and hear the riddle of the week for this week. Parsha is in talking again about the construction and now we're talking about the construction of the Arn Kodesh. It says, that it was covered in gold on the inside and the outside. And the Gemara and Yuma based on this is called similar to the Arn Kodesh on the inside and the outside. It had gold. Not only on the outside to give the appearance but on the inside as well. Says the Gemara and Yuma has to be the same thing. His inside has to reflect the outside. The outside has to reflect the inside. It can't only be on the appearance, on on the outside, it has to be the inside as well. And there's the Gemara the famous Gamoran and Baruchas that talks about Rabbi Gamliel when he was a Nazi, he insisted that anyone who's going to be coming into the base of Medrash, any Talmud in the base of Medrash has to be Tochel Kavarro. Can't only be that he's external, he has to be internal as well. He didn't let them into the base Medrash. And only when the Nasius moved over to Rabbi Eliezer ben Azaria, at that point they removed the Shomer HaPesach, the guard at the door who would ferret out who was permitted to go in and who was not permitted to go in. So we had that guard at the door during the time of Rebbe Gamliel and when Rebbe Gamliel was replaced by Rebbe Elizabeth ben that guard was removed and as we know the Gemara goes on to say that 400 different rows were added so many more Talmidim came to the base of Medrash and the question the riddle is as follows we said that Shomer HaPesach the person who was guarding the door they removed him that was the person who was able to distinguish a Talmud Chacham who had his Tochel Kavaro and a Talmud who didn't have his Tochel Kavaro. that's what his job was he was letting in those who were Tochel Kavaro, and he kept out those who were not Toha kavaro? and the question is as follows who was that guard who was that guard at the door of the base medrash that knew who can tell who could distinguish between those who were really Toha kavaro and those who were only external in appearance and didn't internalize the mitzvahs of the torah if you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen in America, our number is
3: 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, I think that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz
0: Yisrael, it's 372 304 And now, let's go to our guests. Joining us now is Moshe Kahler. Moshe Kahler is the founder and CEO of The Markal Group, which is an innovative real estate development company. He's involved in various sadakas, most significantly, raising $8 million each year with the Euna Parsha to supply the needs of Aniyah Yeret Israel. for that, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for
2: having me. It's an honor to be on your program.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the program, Moshe, I'd like to know what's th- what the metzias is. Let's start with that. I- I've heard rumors, not from one, two, three people, but a number of people about some gvirim, uh, people who have made quick money and are unfortunately indulging in a very public fashion. And I'd uh, love to hear about uh, what you see as going on right now and, and why it's happening. Okay, so... Just to give you some background, I happen to live in Flatbush in Brooklyn. Um, obviously, we have a
2: you know a community that does have affluence, does have you know average, and does have you know people that that struggle with their financial means. And certainly, it's an issue in my community. It's an issue in many other from communities. And what has been happening more recently than ever, it could be just. You know, the deterioration of society. It could be the fact that uh, younger people have made large amounts of money very quickly, but there's definitely been spiral downward in the way people spend their money. When I say people, I'm referring to from people, from people that we would expect to act differently. And that kind of manifests itself in many different places and many different ways. And in some cases, it's becoming beyond comprehension how young people are spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on simchas. It could be as simple as an upsharing. It could be a bris. It could be a birthday party. And, there's, you know, I can tell you, I know firsthand that there's, people have spent a half a million dollars on a simchus. And it's difficult to comprehend how people, you know, don't understand that perhaps they may be doing something wrong by doing that and that, you know, the issue that it creates is, There are many issues that it creates, and, you know, I guess we could speak about those issues, but that's the general issue that, you know, I think that you're asking me about is that quick wealth, young people equals irresponsible spending, and it impacts their families and impacts their friends. And neighbors in a very negative way
0: and so if you live in a society that uh some people have some people don't have and uh some people who have made quick money and and want to spend it lavishly and publicly how does that come out we have simchas what are other ways is it cars i know i'm from los angeles cars was a big deal you uh, we used to say you are what your drive so uh in, in new york maybe it's the same maybe it's different you it used didn't used to be that way because you have all the salt that would destroy the cars when 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 you have the snow but i I think it was more the houses and stuff. So
2: I could tell you, listen, I'm, I'm a guy that, you know I, know, I, you know, I I live nicely and I understand, you know, what it is to enjoy life. So certainly not talking to some, you know, person who doesn't relate to the fact that having a nice car to be enjoyable. Building a nice home is nice and making a nice simple and, you know, wearing a nice watch. What, what, you know, whatever excites you, I can certainly relate to it. But you know, I think it's gotten completely out of proportion And just totally irresponsible. I mean, I can't tell you how many people are flying private, but the idea that uh, airports are full of from young people, chartering private jets with their families, with their friends. One may say, you know, mind your own business and if people have money, let them spend it. And the truth is maybe they're right, but, uh, you know, what is the message that they're, they're, you know, announcing to everyone. You know, if it's whether it's in my community, whether it's in the Lakewood community, whether it's in the five towns. Think that uh, if you present yourself as a from you know, I think it comes along with a certain responsibility to reflect that. And if there's no limitations to how you do things, and you can simply decide because you have money, it's no big deal for me to get on a plane, spend an afternoon with my friends down in Barbados or wherever else they're going. It's certainly something that is not what they've seen in their home. I know that I didn't grow up that way. And I think in many cases, a lot of these guys have made money very quickly and they simply don't know how to, how to be responsible. And I think that they have become part of a rat race where each person's trying to outdo the other. So it's almost embarrassing. You know, if someone sees you, it used to be like if you flew business class, okay, you know, it was, you you know, if you had some humility, you would be a little embarrassed, but after a while you get comfortable with it. And then we come to a point where if one of these guys who flies private would got to end up in a business class. seat. He would be embarrassed. Like you're not flying private. And I can tell you, I know for a fact, like I was at a real estate show in Florida and it was like, how'd you get here? And you know, the fact that you flew on a regular commercial plane is like almost an embarrassment to, to some of these people, which has become insane. And I think that just, you know, reflects the overall decadence and, and craziness that's going on out there. And you're talking about people that may be in their early 30s, late 20s. I, I think it's more this irresponsible behavior, I think is more, you know, it seems to be more of an issue with people that are that are younger and possibly less less responsible and, and haven't seen how quickly money goes and how quickly money comes and goes and and don't understand the what they're doing to the families by the way they're spending the money and what they're doing to the people that live alongside them who are struggling to put food on the table so
0: right right so, motion let's go back to the to the real estate show so wh- what's that like those are people who've been successful in real estate and they put on a show is this for from people or is this just a general real estate yeah, show?
2: yeah so so the real estate show was it was an appropriate show it was in miami i was there you know probably a few hundreds from people you know majority from people it was it was definitely you know done in an appropriate way, and the you know the organizers are not responsible for how people get there, certainly, but the overall atmosphere is is one of where people who uh, it just who are going down to Florida are are not getting on commercial planes anymore it used to be you know i i know I have a lot of wealthy business associates that are extremely wealthy they've been wealthy for many years. I don't typically follow their their travel means and I don't know what they do, but I know for a fact that uh, when I you know mentioned to someone about flying private that you know people coming down private looked at me like what?" Private what is that supposed to mean? I said people charter jets. So this is a this is a new concept. I mean, you know, people uh very I'm in the real estate business and I can tell you that very wealthy people that never thought about getting on a private plane. That's not to say that in in a certain cases, if you need to fly somewhere, you need to get there at a certain time and there's no plane. We're not talking about that, but that's become the lifestyle where people, you know, have access to planes. I understand there are young guys who have leased planes, they, they say it's business ride off sort, but it's pretty insane when you have, you know, thirty year old guys that uh, are at of Yeshiva for a few years and they access a plane. And I don't have to tell you where access a plane typically gets you, but you can go to the airport and there's certainly more than enough flights to get you to Florida or get you to a local place, have more than enough options. I can tell you, cause I know that that's how I get around. So I don't think the issue is it's a matter of a lifestyle and a certain statement that you want to make. And the planes is just a small part of it. You yeah, know, yeah, that's, the, that's yeah. what
0: I wanted to explore. You know, I I've heard about yeah. you know what what may go on on the planes, and uh, I don't know if we want to go in that direction. It's funny, I I did a show uh, recently on on the, it wasn't lavish lifestyles, but it was more uh, actions that people were involved in with the vaping and the expensive uh, alcohol and the like. And somebody saw me in Chile and said, "You did a PG version of what's going on out there." So you know, I I, I don't know if you want to comment or not. Probably not. Maybe it's better you don't. About we'll go. On on some of those planes, not everyone or the, the locations or you know the boys' club going could be on uh, trips, quote, quote unquote business trips or vacations. But I understand there's there's a lot more that's going on other than simply chartering planes for an hour or two for twenty twenty five thousand dollars.
2: Yeah, so I mean I, I'd rather not go into it simply because I, I don't know this for a fact. Um, I haven't been on these planes with them, uh, but I think it, it's fair to say that what you've heard is unfortunately. Likely that is going on. And I think it's, it's part of the same symptoms. If, you're, if you feel compelled you know, to waste $40,000 to spend an afternoon and get on a plane and fly to Barbados with your friends, I think that it's fair to say that uh, it's not exciting enough because you need more excitement. And I think that the more excitement equals probably inappropriate behavior. But I'll let the, someone else handle that one.
0: Right. So, so are, is anyone speaking about this between besides on headlines, like are the rebunim of these uh, of these young individuals uh, that have made the, the, the quick money? Uh, do they have the rabbinim that are giving them input on how to act properly and uh, inappropriate behavior, lack of modesty in spending money? Or is this just uh, because they're able to write checks, then uh, it goes unchecked? So I can tell you that
2: I'm not part of a, a, a fool or you know, a yeshiva that has this issue that, that, that it's getting addressed specifically. But I can tell you that, you know, I was at the Mir Kala not that long ago, and Rabbi Elephant spoke about it. I know that uh, Rabbi Usman spoke about it. And I can't imagine that the rabbinim in the communities that are seeing this are not jumping up and down and talking to their people and saying, you know, guys, you know, what's going on here? I mean, if a Rav sees someone spend half a million dollars on a kiddush, and he doesn't say anything, I think it's pretty telling about who's running that that cahilla. And I'm not, you know, in any way disparaging Rabundam and and abundant have a very difficult job because, you know, being a rub is, comes along with its own complications. And then you have to deal with this as well. So it's not like they can solve these problems. But I think the other part of it is one thing from the little research that I've done, and again, this is not something that I'm completely focused on, but because I was made aware of it, then I see it, then I hear about it. What I understand is that in most cases, these Gaviram, as they're referred to, have really no respect for authority. And I think, you know, when you make a lot of money and you can write a fiducia check, you know, it's very difficult or whether it's the rabbi yeshul, the yeshiva that you send your kids to, to tell you, listen, this is out of place. You know, I hope, I hope that there are rabbinim that that stand up to it. I know for a fact that the rabbinim speak about it in general terms. And it's, you know, I think many rabbinim in many communities are are very aware of it. it. And the biggest concern, and that's the reason why I'm, I'm even having this conversation. I'm not trying, I'm not, I don't call myself an Askin and and certainly not a guy who drives a fancy car and lives in a nice house. There's a guy getting up and, you know, they say about living in glass houses, you don't throw stones. But I think if I'm a responsible person and I'm a little bit older and I can tell you that I understand what it is to have fun. I think the biggest issue and, and, and the biggest concern for all of us is what the younger generation is seeing. And someone has to make that statement and say, this is not acceptable. And I do get a chance to speak to younger guys, whether they're in their late teens, early 20s, that are going into business and they start, and what they're being fed, maybe through osmosis or just watching what's going on, is terrible. I mean, A, you know, that you can make a quick buck and what a quick buck does for you. You can, you know, and there's no rules anymore. There's no we can basically do what you want as long as you write to the doctor. Check you could be the most important guy in the shul, most important guy in the yeshiva. You know, you could put an ad in the paper and talk about how much money you gave, and that that gives you the free ticket to do whatever you want. And it also makes people think that you don't have to work for your money. And and I think we all know that in some cases the way some of these guys are making money certainly not the appropriate way to make money, you know? There's a number of different industries specifically, but I could tell you firsthand that there's a cash advance industry and I think it has to be said and it has to be said loud, you know, and I'm not telling you that everybody who's in that business is a, is a low life, but the business itself is based on taking advantage of people. And there's no way that if a person is a Ben or, or even went to yeshiva should ever feel comfortable being in a business like that. Problem is, right. is that it's quick money. And, this, and if your people that you know are doing it and they're abundant are not screaming, this is inappropriate, then what's the problem? Just because I'm in the real estate business, they'll tell me to mind my own business. You know, we don't tell you how you should build your buildings. Don't tell us how we should make our money. And that's kind of the attitude that they'll have because like it's, than in my
0: business right so right I, I, I saw recently in a, a very powerful and as we know there's a gemon shabbos that says that uh, the questions that we're going to ask six questions i may have asked him and uh, the first one is typically we explain that means were you honest in your business dealings and we think that means that did you steal did you uh were you over the sort of gnevis das etc and if we can say we didn't steal and uh, we didn't uh, violate the big ones then when we can answer correctly we can answer in the affirmative nasata v'nasata b'emunah yes Ur Shochan has a very different take on that and he says when, it, when we're asked uh, if we were nasata v'nasata b'emunah he says the kavana there it doesn't mean were, did you were you stealing from people? It's not talking about geneva and gazela and ona'a and your weights and measures. He says, because if somebody does that stuff, da da'osechein hu rasha gamor. We're not being asked, are you a rasha or not? We're, asking, we're, we're being asked about something totally different. He, he says that when we're asked that question, he's, we're being asked, was your word golden? He's asked, did you even not say a white lie? And then he goes on to say that your business ethics, did you deal with people benachas nicely? Pleasantly, Did you speak nicely to people? I would think that somebody who's involved in calling up people or has a team of people calling up in cash advances is probably not going to be able to say yes in the affirmative to, to this orach ha
2: Yeah, and I think even worse than that is that, you know, the chila Hashem that goes on is, you know, beyond comprehension. I mean, if anyone fools themselves and thinks that, the, you know, that the people that they're targeting, whether they live in, you know, the Midwest or in some hick town they don't know that behind, you know, the phone is somebody, you know, it's very easy to know who you're dealing with. And unfortunately, you know, this creates enormous backlash. And I could tell you in my own business, there was a time about 20 years ago, I used to work in New Jersey, you know, I was in a rough part of New Jersey, it was in East Orange, Newark, and I wasn't comfortable wearing my yarmulke there. I just did not want to announce that I was a from Jew. And I would walk into my office, you know, take off my yarmulke at the end of the day, you know, uh, put it back on. And that's why I did that for a while. And then I just didn't feel walk dealing with the, the city officials. There were issues with previous uh, situations were from Jews. And I was like, you know what? I know that I'm from the. I don't have to wear my yarmulke to announce it over there. And what happened was there was uh, I, I was. You know, having a drink with a banker and, you know, he had you know, two, three drinks and he, he knew obviously that I was an Orthodox Jew. And he says to me, he goes, you know, I got to tell you, you know, you're not like the other the other Jews. You're different than them. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you know, the guys who wear yarmulkes and the guys look and he started telling me how he had this dishonest this guy, that dishonest guy. And I'm sitting there. Now, he only, you know, shared this with me because he had a few drinks and he just didn't realize maybe he thought yeah, I didn't subscribe to the same philosophies or the same rules. And I, I you know, I said, no, I'm an Orthodox Jew. And, and the people that are acting this way, they're the ones that are not acting as Orthodox Jews. And I said to myself at that point that how foolish I am for not wearing a yarmulke because here I am trying to do business ethically and I'm missing, not only am I, you know hiding it, I'm also missing an opportunity to show the world that this is how from people are supposed to do business. And from that moment on, I, I never took off my yarmulke again unless I really felt that my, it was dangerous. And, but I was never embarrassed to wear a yarmulke. And it's funny, I was just reading Moshe Rashman's story and how he, you know, made such a point to present himself as a firm year. Like, you know, he grew a beard and how it was so important and, and how he just went around the world you know, and impress every bank and every prime minister that's the way a from Jew looks and this is the way a from Jew acts. And, you know, he encouraged other people who are taking up the to wear a yarmulks. But, you know, let's go to the to other people today that are wearing yarmulkes, you know, or look like from Jews and, and you know, and if you're involved in, in business that is wrong, forget about the Dim Khaj that you have to deal with in the next world. What about what you're doing in this world? I, 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 I don't want to say this publicly, but this is Day in and day out, I get to see the damage that from people do the way they conduct business. I hear it all the time. I'm a developer, so developers are not generally the most favorite people that come to neighbors, and I got to hear about how the firm do did that, the firm do built this and that. And like I can say is, look, I'll try to do better, and you'll see that I'll do better. But and this is talking about people that are in the real estate business, you know, whether they're building homeless shelters and on a block that that has a regular block that just impacts the neighborhood and destroys it. And then the list list is long. But, you know, the common denominator is chasing money, wanting to be wealthy. And once you have a certain goal and a desire and there's no rules then nothing matters,
0: Right, so, so that, that's all alluring. You, you see people who have made a lot of money, uh, they don't have to worry about covering their bills, they're living the life, they're living the dream. W- what's the message that you tell to the boys in Yeshiva because they look up to that and, and they, they're kind of missing the point here that that's not the ideal way to live. So what, what do you tell them to counteract that? So it's,
2: diff- it's very difficult. You know, at the end of the day, money is very powerful. Success is obviously what we all want. And the only thing that I can tell them is, look, I want to be successful too. You want to be successful too. Why do you want to be successful? Because you think it's going to make you happy, right? You'll be able to buy things. You'll be able to do things and you'll be able to do good things, right? Because of course, everybody says, no, but if I had money, I'd be give a duck and I'd be able to learn more and I'd be able to do all this. But all you have to do, if you really believe that, is look at what the guys who have made this money are doing. They're doing exactly the opposite. They're not. Their lives aren't better. Everybody knows that if, you, if you're spending a half a million dollars on a simcha, there's something deep, deeply missing. There's some a void in your life that you're trying to fill. And what the void is and why you have it is something that they have to figure out. But if somebody has a disease that he has to go spend a half a million dollars on a SIM because he has to announce to everybody, look, I'm successful. And you know, the list goes on and how it's done that you can't be happy. And I think that's the common denominator is that people are chasing the next high. And if, if it's the simple, it's the 25,000 square foot home, it's the $150,000 watch. And, you know, the list goes on and on. So it's certainly indicative of a person having an empty life and not a fulfilling life. So, you know, it's, while it may sound very exciting to have $25 million and make that in a month and to have $100 million and this guy has a million or whatever it is. then I can only hope that the people don't pay the consequences for the way they made that money. But the message I have to to people watching this is, no, this is not what you look up to. Look up to the people, you know, fortunately, the Jewish community has a a list of, of people who who are very wealthy that have lived with humility, you know, I mean I, I, Ruby Schroen would be on top of that list, but there's a long list of people, you know, that are Bali Tzedakah that you don't know that they're Bali Tzedakah. I mean and I can tell you that there's a lot of people in every community, because I raise money for, for Naira Gitrol and I can tell you I do that with a couple of good friends, and we get Checks that would blow people's minds. I mean, so the generosity is there. And I could I could tell you one thing, and this is not a coincidence, that whoever gives us generous checks and th- does it, you know, with pleasure, just coincidentally, none of them do the things that we're talking about. And they could all do the things that we're talking about because they're wealthy. But (laughs) it's hand in hand. If you look a certain way, you're not writing that check for tzadaka. And that's the bottom line. So if you're writing a check for tzadaka, because the way we raise money is we don't have an organization, so no one's going to know that you gave money. The people that we give it to, you'll never know. They don't know who you are. So this is the highest level of tzadaka. So if you're not getting a benefit, Other than the mitzvah and the the good deed, then you're not interested in doing it. So in other cases, you know, maybe you'll be in the papers, maybe your name will be, you know, announced all of which may in certain cases be appropriate. You know, that's not for me to opine, you know, what's right or wrong. But I could tell you that the humility of the way people give us is usually with the the humility of the way they live. And I'll just add this. you have to understand that if you live in a community that's made up of the Neytar, let's just say it's a learning community, not a learning community, whether it's Brooklyn, whether it's Lakewood, it's the Five Towns, you know, whatever community you live in, and again, you know, just to be clear, I nobody specific in mind in, in this entire conversation. This is all general. But at the end of the day, forget about the yeshiva guy who has a family at home that's barely putting bread on the table, that he has to see this. I think it's less of a, a risk with him because he, is very content with his life, and he made a decision. And he lives a certain way, and I see it all the time because, you know, when I spend time in Eretz Israel, I see it. They're the happiest guy sitting in the mirror with nothing to eat, practically. But what about the guy who works, went to law school, you know, or tries to sell insurance and made, makes an honest living, can barely get his tuition paid, has to borrow money for weddings? You know, he's, he's a businessman, okay? He's a, he's a good, honest businessman, raising a good family, and he watches the guy, next to him doing this the plane the simplest you think that he's not going home thinking like negative feelings about those people and and you know I don't, I don't even say the word i and her but the i and her that you expose yourself to that you think people forget that that you act that way i mean when someone starts building a, a twenty five thousand square foot home and the guy around the corner barely making his mortgage payment you think you're not poking his eyes out i mean why would a person take that risk and that's what i would tell a young guy who's looking at this like look it it it's nice to live in a twenty five thousand square home and in the movies you see what it has. But is that really the lifestyle that you want? Is that the lifestyle you want you want to raise your kids this way? I mean the guys that are doing this did not see it in their homes. So if they didn't see it in their homes and they're acting this way, you can imagine what their kids are gonna do. Right. And it's just an awful, awful standard to set.
0: Absolutely agree. Absolutely. Agree. Marshall, let me ask you a personal question. How do you keep yourself grounded? Like what's your Seder uh, Hayom? What's your learning schedule? How do you keep your, your uh, head in the game?
2: So the answer is, 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 learning. I mean, I could tell you that, uh, you know, I've, I've been down this road, you know, I didn't have uh, maybe the wealth or the ability and, and certainly not the people that, uh, you know, you, this is not something you typically do on your own. You know, I don't think it takes one guy to make the first input. That's ridiculous. It takes the first guy to get on the private plane. It takes the first guy to start doing this and it becomes a, a pandemic or whatever you want to call it. But so I, but I, I trust me, I understand what I'm having at good times. I, I, know it quite well. And I think that, uh, you know, the difference in my life, not I think, I'm clear the difference in my life was whether it was at 30 years old, I'm 50 now, was really getting serious about learning Torah. And and when I say serious, uh, typically a good two, three, four hours a day with a harusa learning the And I never thought if you would ask me at 25 and 30, you know, until I started, would I have imagined that I would, I'd get into learning? I, I couldn't have imagined that, that I would become so serious about it and how it really changed my life. And it's a separate story and how it all happened. But I can tell you that that's really the common denominator. I mean, obviously, because tells tell us, you know, how Hashem created the etar and, and, and He created the medicine for it and the tablan for it. And I can tell you that that's the common denominator. Anybody who's, who is a bentara. And a bentara, obviously, can be defined in a lot of different ways not necessarily, you could be a venturer by learning 20 minutes a day. If Those 20 minutes are the most valuable 20 minutes. But if you have free time and that's what you want to do, that defines really who you are. So it's not about the hours and it's not a, the Ian versus Ikea or Daphia. person has a desire to grow in learning and, and, you know, can't wait for an opportunity to learn. I can tell you that the most exciting trips that I've made in the last 15 years are to Eretz Israel to spend a week in the mirror, you know, learning two, three Sudaram for seven, eight hours. And then I'm getting me talking to a guy who was not a big learner in, in, in Yeshiva. Getting to one day that was, was a challenge. And now it's the most exciting thing that I look forward to. And, you know, and I've been to some really nice hotels and really wherever they are, I'd rather not talk about it. But I, I know both sides of both sides of life over here. And I can tell you that being serious about learning is what has really kept me grounded and what keeps me grounded. And I would say this, I would tell every woman that hears this. you know, maybe people will be pretty angry at me for saying this but I'll say it anyway, if your husband is not learning, he's up to no good, and that's the bottom line. And you don't need me to say it, it's, it's written in every safer. it's written throughout the Torah, but that's the bottom line. If a person is a husband who doesn't learn, and I'm not gonna define what learning means, that's for each person to understand, but if a person, you need to be very worried. And I would say that in business too, if a person is not involved in learning, I would not trust them. Right, and, and though, you know, I'm not painting everyone with a broad paintbrush that, you know, if you're not if you don't have five caruses, it must be you're stealing money. I don't mean that. But if a person who's not and I can tell you, I've seen it firsthand, the people I've done business with that are Bonetara are the honest people and the people that uh, are not are, are deceptive. And, you know, and sometimes, unfortunately, you see people that learn that aren't necessarily honest. So it doesn't mean absolutely that you're going to be honest. I can tell you one thing, that if you're not learning, you're up to no good.
0: Yeah, I've seen the same Moshe. Um, Somebody to stay connected, learning is the oxygen For, 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 for a man. For a man to stay connected, it's learning. You can't do it through other mitzvahs. You should also have the other mitzvahs as well. But without learning, somebody is disconnected.
2: A hundred percent. And it, especially in today's day, you know, I mean, I, I think obviously the challenges are timeless, you know, being a, a firm, it, it was a struggle, you know, since the beginning of time, but we all know what's going on out there. I mean, the access that we have to everything that's wrong, it's like, it's unreal. I mean, I was just talking to, you know, my kids about this. It's like the idea that today marijuana is legal, that you can go to kiddish and there's edibles and, and it's appro- it became appropriate, you know? And I'm not getting up at the stender and, and, and making announcements of what's right and wrong. You know, everybody has to know what's right and wrong. But the idea that this exists in our communities, People have to say to themselves. One second, what, what what happens when my kid starts doing it? So if you're a 35, 40 year old guy and you know and and you're doing it and, and you're coming home stoned and you're coming home wasted and 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 your kids see it, come on, you know what your kid sees. You think he's not going to do the same thing his father does if he doesn't see his father open up a, a, a gemara, you know, on a Sunday, you know, it doesn't even occur to his father to to, to, to you know, on a Shabbos, you know what is a Friday night, whether it's a Shabbos afternoon, whether it's a Sunday, you can't fool your kids. So if you're not broadcasting a message to your kids that learning is exciting and important and it keeps you grounded, then your kids are not going to want to be part of it. I can tell you that, you know, that's one benefit I certainly had Was my father. He didn't, certainly I didn't look up to his lifestyle in terms of his simplicity and he had no desire for any of the things that I desired, but the learning was where I grew up and that's what I always saw. So to me, that was always, you know, natural that I, that, that's what made sense. But if your kids don't see it, you can write checks to yeshivas and you can tell your kid how important learning is. But the kids are not stupid; they see what, what's more important. And you're going to raise kids that are never going to learn. And if that never learning equals living the wrong way, then where do you think it's going to end up? It's only it's only getting worse. Living in a in a place and a time that I with the kids, what our kids have to, the challenges that they have, we couldn't even imagine you know, the access, the internet, you know, I mean, they just legalized sports gambling in New York, you know, last week. I'm not, I'm not advertising it, but I think everybody knows that.
0: So it's now sports gambling is legal and marijuana is legal in New York?
2: Yep. Marijuana is legal all over, I think in most states. Yeah. It's legal. <laughs> and not only is it legal, it became it became socially acceptable. So we're having a drink was a socially acceptable thing, depending on what I'm mean, talking about necessarily from circles. Like, you know, people didn't get together it, it, typically from environment and, and start drinking during the day. I think you, you'd end up in, with a serious alcoholic problem. But, uh, you know, it, it's an appropriate thing. You know, today you can walk around and you no, no one looks down at you. I mean, the same way, you know, gay marriage is acceptable and everything else that, uh, you know, happens to them is now the norm. But the idea of sports gambling being legal is, is, is mind boggling. You know, it, it means that anyone has access to it. It's, you know, and you there's nothing wholesome anymore. You can't even take your kids to a, a, a sporting event anymore. Like I, I want, you know, I, I, I like basketball, I like football, but my kids tell me that, and, and I would, you know, have the, like the Brooklyn Nets, they have some great basketball players. And, you know, my kids tell me, you know, I personally out with the issue with the uh, pandemic It's hard, they're not vaccination, but they tell me that they have, you know, like uh, transgender dancing. It's like, you can't go anywhere. It's just like, it, it, it's just, this is the life that, and if, you, if you're not protected with, with, you know, having meaning in your life, and that's what I mean by learning, then you know where you're going to end up. It's, it's only a matter of time. Just the, the point I want to make is also, you know, like I, I had the, you know, the biggest blessing, the biggest bracha that, I, that I'm so thankful for is, you know, I, I have five boys and one daughter, you know, I have three married boys and my fourth one's getting married soon. And the fact that I was able to go to Miri you know, a month ago and bring my two boys there, and sit and learn with them, for them to see what I enjoy and for them, for me to watch them enjoy it and for them to really know that that's the most exciting thing in my life, that you get on a plane and I could take them skiing the Swiss Alps and we can go to Las Vegas and we can party and we can do all that stuff. But there's nothing that I want more for myself. Forget about the, the old oh, no, I'm talking about nothing more that I enjoy right now. It's been like that for a lot of years. And that's the best feeling a, a firm you can have is, you know, you can get on a private plane and take your kids to a place that you think will mean something to them. But it's all meaningless. When you get on a plane with your kids and you sit for a few days and you learn and your kids, you, see, you watch your kids just can't get enough of every minute, then you know that you're setting the right example for your family. And that's, and that's the message I, I would tell the guys, whoever listens to this, if you don't see that ever happening in your life because you're so far away from it, then you have to ask yourself what are you willing to sacrifice? It's a hard work. I mean, let's face it. It's more exciting to get on a plane. It's more exciting to have fun. And you could have fun. There's kosher ways to have fun. But if you even think about having a dream, that you know, because ultimately that's what we all want. We, we want to raise from kids and we want to raise happy children. And if you think that you ever have a chance of having that, ask yourself what I'm doing right now, I may be 25, I maybe 35. Is this going to get me to that place? And if the answer is absolutely not. You know, you got to stop If it's, Maybe not. You better start making some plans about how things are going to change. And that's the point of, you know, me having this conversation, not to solve the problems, not to cast aspersions on anybody and uh, make anyone feel uncomfortable. And I'm not the gossip ever talking negative about and that they should get involved. I don't step on, I don't go next to that conversation. Rebundum are on a different level. They They know better than me, and I'll accept that they have a way to deal with it and they'll deal with it. But as a regular, regular business person and a regular person who cares about the future of our teenagers, of our kids, of our, my friends' kids, you gotta. that's what I'm saying. Stop for a second. Think about what you're teaching them when you do business a certain way, when you waste money a certain way, and when you act a certain way. They're watching, and the world is watching. And if you don't stop now, it's only going to get worse. And, and, but the point is, is that you should be connected to Torah. That's the that's key. If you're not, you're in trouble.
0: Very good. Moshe, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I personally learned a lot and and really appreciate all the advice and wisdom you've given us. Thank you
2: for the opportunity. I hope uh, if even one person makes one change, it was worth it.
0: Thank you so much. All the best. Take care. Joining us now is Rabbi Chaim Tzvi Center. Rabbi Center is the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivas Adera Satara. He is a well known and respected Rebbe, Rosh Yeshiva, and mentor, and he is sought out by many for his insights and advice. Rabbi Center, thank you so much for joining us.
4: My pleasure to be here.
0: So, Rabbi Sender, you obviously live in Eritizel, Arze Abira, and uh, you do take trips occasionally to overseas. You happen to be overseas right now, so we are communicating from the distance. Otherwise, we could have done this in person. And and I'd like to get your take. We're talking about uh, lavish lifestyles and what's going on with some, obviously not all, but uh, certain Balabatim in certain communities. And I wanted to get your take because you, you, through your trips and uh, the advice that you give people, you get calls and you find out what's going on outside in the world. I- I've heard rumors about uh involved in things that I happen to not see in, in this neighborhood too much, but expensive alcohol, uh, rolled cigars and the like, um, high-end clothing, wining and dining, lavish vacations. What-, what-, what have you seen going on in Klaal Israel right now?
4: Okay, that's uh, definitely a lot to speak about right there. And of course, we- 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 it's important for us not to Generalize about any particular community, or you know, a, or a large group of people, and saying that everyone's doing something. But before I even go into the obvious intention of this question, is is that there's a problem here? Before we go into that, I just want to tell you that I am, like you mentioned, I'm in the states at the moment, and I, I was in Lakewood, and I saw Moisley in Lakewood. I saw these humongous buildings, these palaces, these girls' schools, yeshivas, shuls. And, you know, I, being from and we're used to like, you know, these little modest places because everything, you know, is, is relatively small. And I'm thinking to myself, the tremendous amount of giving that's happening, that must be happening, that they're building all these palaces there. I mean, the, the estate, they're stately, all the schools and everything. It comes from a certain uh, a lifestyle or a, there's a, a way that a person just is large. They're large people. And often when you're trying to get someone to think big, so they think big in all different areas, the same way you have a person who's got a big heart and a big head and big arms. So they're big. So they're big, they, they get big cars, they have big watches, and they give big checks. And there's a lot of, it is a lot of tremendous amount of stucca that's going on. So before we, we enter into, you know, the, the prose and the understanding, the beauty of a modest lifestyle, I think it's important to, to point out that there's, uh, there's a tremendous amount of philanthropy that's happening in Claudius Yisrael. And, and I'm sure it's not just Lakewood. I just happened to have been there and I was just overcome by what's uh, the, the amazing moistness that are there. And, uh, and we have to give credit to the fact that there are people that are giving so much money. And, and if we allow them to, or if we realize that their lifestyle that they live is one that's allowing them to write these big checks, I think that that's also something positive that we can
0: see in this whole situation and yeah, no question no question about that and we do have uh in, in in Yerushalayim as well we have uh at least two uh humongous uh bate medre shuls um not too far from w- where you're from so we, we that do, does exist but that's uh we can count them on, on we can count them on one hand here
4: Right. And, and, and a lot of that does come from America also, by the way. A lot of that money is coming from there. Uh, but I was just overwhelmed one after the other, one right next to the other. These huge yeshivas, huge yeshuals. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And that's something to celebrate and to be proud of. <clears throat> At the same time, um, there, there is something which is a challenge for us. And that is the fact that people are uh, living a lavish lifestyle. And something that which I, I just heard not that long ago. <clears throat> from uh, Ramad HaPogamansky. Ramad HaPogamansky is, was the Telzer Iloy. And in 1946, he said the following thing. It's unbelievable. 1946, when he lived through the Khorban of Europe, he lived through the Holocaust. And and when Claudius Yisrael was, at one of their low points of history, I am not, uh, you know, a historian, I can say that is the lowest point, but it was definitely, you know, historically one of the lowest points of history where Yisrael was, was on the brink of annihilation. And Moshe said the following thing, and I'm going to add one, to kuda, just because I think that it makes the, 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 the whole Deva much more beautiful. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he said it. I only heard part of it. He said, there's three different things. There's b'chol lovav, b'chol 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 nele decha. You have to love Hashem with all your heart, with all your heart, with all your uh, nefesh, which is all your soul, and you have to love Hashem with all your money. with all your money. And if you look in the Shema, in the Shema, it says, uh, in the first parashah of Shema, it says all three of them. The second parish of Shema it just says, it doesn't say, and the goin says because the first parsha of Shema is, uh, is for Yechidim. Only Yachidim love Hashem. It's hard to love Hashem with all of your money. In the second major Shema is It's for the Hamunam. In other words, the hardest of all three of these, B'chol leva'chah, is B'chol Says He said we're now going through the Nisayin of B'chol Nafshacha. We're going through the Nisayin of giving up our lives for Hashem, of of being Makadoshim Shemayim, of of the challenges that the, the, the Kli Yisrael is going through such persecution, such redifas. He said, but it's going to come a time. Then Klal Yisrael is going to go through the Nisayin of B'chol me'odecha. There are going to be a time when Kalisow is going to have wealthy, wealthy people, and who was there? Ramesh Sternbach said millionaires. He said no, billionaires. Now, could you imagine in 1946 someone thinking about billionaires in Kalisow? Billionaires in the world? Who would think about billionaires? Moshe Perkamansky, this n- numerous stories that Ruach Hakodesh, but I have no question that it was this was Ruach Hakodesh, and he said, and Kalisow is going to be going through a shverer nisoyen than we're going through now. Now, I could never say that, but someone who went through the Holocaust can say that. Someone who's saying that the, the that Nisayan of, hey, let's put let's call a spade a spade, the Nisayan of America is a bigger Nisayan than the Holocaust.
0: Those are very powerful words. Yeah. Yeah.
4: And I'll tell you something else. I heard from uh, Ramesh Shapiro. He said, what was the worst Gullus Kali Yisrael ever went through? Which was the worst? Of all the, the gulls? which was the most damaging? He said, I'm sorry to tell you, boys. I said it in English because he wanted to bring his goles America. The amount of yidin that we've lost in America is bigger than what we lost in the khurban For sure, we didn't lose them to gas chambers. We didn't lose them to crematorium. We lost them to apple pie. We lost them to Thanksgiving. We lost them to the embrace of the goyim. But we lost so much to the affluence of America. And and it, and it's really the same type of thing. This is a tremendous Nisayim. What we're experiencing is a tremendous Nisayim, and, uh, and, the, and it's very hard for a person to, uh, to deal with that. I have a, a dear friend of mine, his name was Mendy Klein, the I don't know if you ever met him or heard of him. Yeah, Mendy lived in Cleveland. Mendy was a rags-to-riches story. He was a poor man, even after he was married with children. And he got a bracha from the Tasha Rebbe, and he became fabulously wealthy, and, uh, and also a tremendous baltstaka. Mendy told me he said, you know, I was poor and I was rich. It was harder being rich than it was being poor.
0: And why is that? Why, why, did, why was Mendy saying that?
4: Well, he didn't tell me why. I, I was so taken by what he said that I, you know, it just the, the, the words itself was, were stunning for me. So I didn't ask him why is that? But that's what he said to me. It's harder being rich than it, is, than it was being poor. And Mendy was very poor. I mean, he told me that they turned the heat off on him. He lived in Cleveland. It was freezing cold. That's how poor he was. And still, it was harder being fabulously wealthy than it was being, you know, very, very poor. And th- there are nisyonists that, that people are facing. And, and it's important to realize that if a person allows his money to, to dominate his life, it's, uh, it's extremely dangerous and detrimental.
0: Right, right. So the, the impact is, is, is the, the lavish Lifestyle, the drinking, the cigars—I mean, that—that seems to be what we are seeing in certain uh, communities. Why does that happen? Are, are, are they feeling a void? Is this the influence of secular society? Did we innovate this? What, what, what's happening here?
4: I don't think it's the influence of secular society. I'll tell you why. Because you know, I was yesterday talking to someone who said to me, "You know, people that are upper class America." They don't necessarily need to drive fancy cars. They don't. They are not driving, you know, SUVs. And Americans aren't. The, the are, we have a fascination, uh, our society, is a fascination with cars. We have like all these. Everyone's driving big cars, nice cars. I don't think we got that from the Gaonim. And if we didn't get that from the Gaonim, I don't think we got any of this from the Gaonim necessarily. I, uh, I think that this is it's, it's within our culture. These are all things that um, that halakhically one would say is not us, sir. Right? And Baruch Hashem. <clears throat> so, therefore, that, that becomes all part of a person creating his reputation and um, and um, trying to enjoy his life. And I think that it is a big problem in a certain way, and I'll tell you how. I heard a conversation about between two different people. It was on a podcast, a Talmud of mine has a podcast, and he had a Rav on, and he asked him a question. He asked him, Is it the onus of a wealthy person to live a more modest lif- lifestyle? Because of the person next to him who can't afford what he can afford, he's going to go and he's going to go on a big trip, a fancy trip to Arizona or to the Bahamas or whatever it might be. And the, and the person living next to him can't do that. And he's going to be jealous. Is the, the onus on him. And the answer was, it's not the onus necessarily, but it's his opportunity. As an opportunity to show, if he wants to show that he can live without it and to make it easier for others, show leadership. That was the answer that was given. So is it onus or opportunity? And I want to take a totally different direction. I don't think it's onus or opportunity. I think that it's extremely important for every person to realize that materialism will not make you happy. And if a person is just saying, okay, it's the next vacation, it's the next car, it's the more beautiful watch, all these things are going to make me happy. He's just, he's barking up the wrong trees, going in the wrong direction, and he's not going to be happy. He will not be happy. And people can say, "Oh, of course you're going to say that you're in Chinuch and you're their rabbi." And that's what the say. I was in Ari. I was in the house, the the largest house in all of Flatbush. Now, the person that owns the largest house in all of Flatbush was a very wealthy man. I don't think it's the largest house anymore. It used to be the largest house, but whatever. I don't want to debate of who. It was a huge house. a, A very wealthy man. And he's sitting there, and he's talking to me, and we're friends. And he said to me, "What you think? I'm happy?" He said, "I'm not." He said to me, honestly, I'm not happy. Well, I'm going to run after another deal and another deal. After a while, you know something, when people actually get to the top of the mountain, and I had another friend of mine who was at the top of, the, he said to me, I don't, I, don't, I don't live for anything anymore. What am I living for? I have so much. I, people are running after a false gold. There's nothing there. Now, a person can use his materialism in order to enhance his relationships in order to enhance his purpose in his life, but it's not a purpose, and that's what people are living for: in order to make money, and 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 in order to be able to, you know, to, to get a nice car, and their 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 lives are are going to be empty, and they're going to feel unfulfilled. And I think that that is the problem with with uh, people living these lavish lifestyles. Because luckily, I don't see that there's a problem with it, but it's not it's not it's just not bringing us to anything productive.
0: Right. Parshas Vayechi. In talking about Yesachar, it says, yeah. Right? So saw minuha. Life was good. The house was huge. Billions in the bank. But what does it say there? And he got to work. And I heard Rabbi Franz say this. He says, this doesn't make sense. If you're sitting on the beach, you're enjoying life, you get to work. He says the Jewish concept of enjoyment is not having the huge house and sitting on the beach and vacationing and being in retirement, but it's having tranquility through working hard. That's what our concept is. Yeah.
4: yeah. I, I'll give you the way that I said it. I used to say it in yeshiva is, is that there's one way of looking at things is you work uh, so much of your life in order to be able to vacation. The other way that I feel we look at it is we vacation a little bit so we can have enough strength to continue to work.
0: We're not, yeah, we're not looking for- at it yeah absolutely person,
4: we need a little bit sometimes to relax and a person needs of course some you know some comfort in his life but that's
0: not it's not our material, it's not our purpose Right, right. So, so, so the, 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 lavish lifestyles, sometimes maybe it could be used for a good purpose. Like we, we try to get people to, into the learning through having these, uh, drink and learns, right? So drink and learn it used to be the, the, the bagels and learn or something like that. But now the drink and learns and the cigars and learns and the sushi and learns. And, and would you say that's a positive thing giving out the freshly rolled, uh, cigars to get people to come to a, to a shear once a week? Would we say, or is that maybe not the, uh, the, the right attractive, attraction?
4: So my opinion is that everything uh, is a question of uh, to what extent. In other words, um, if a person is going to have, we're going to call it a, a, a shear and they're going to give a chayim at the year. If people are going to get drunk at that and that and that's something that I think is absolutely deplorable, uh, to, for people, for, for people to be doing that. So then it's, then it's not bringing you to a good place. <clears throat> there is a, and I understand that sometimes people are being practical and they say, okay, so you can't serve anything to drink because people are going to get drunk. But in reality, we all know that lots of Rabbonin would make a Lachayim. There's an Indian of Dafka having alcohol, Right? by, by in, I'm, I'm not going to go through the halacha of whether you could use grape juice in your yoytze, but there are definitely an inion of having alcohol uh, in, in, in when a person uses yayin. The idea of yayin uh, the yayin at the seder is, 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 there's also more, you know, um, there's deeper meanings in that but, but these are things that we can use in a positive way how do you use it in a positive way? It's good for, by something like this, it's by having a shear when you're going to have someone and, and you make a, a lachaim now Again, once a person does it in excess, it becomes a problem. But that's the way it is with everything in life. So, do I think it's, I so, think it's a problem having the shirum? I don't think so, as long as it's under control.
0: So, I, I don't have too many bottles of three hundred dollar Glenlivet or something like that. Just limit it to, to three bottles. Well, well, a few. Under a thousand dollars. First of all, like
4: everything, again, really depends on where you're at. In other words, Ari, would you let, – let's let's not say three $300. Would you accept a $30 bottle?
0: You're asking the wrong person. I don't would drink.
4: You, <laughs> would you think that that's – I understand. Would you think that's excessive, a 30 No,
0: I, I don't think that's excessive.
4: Okay. But, you know, it could be that 50 years ago, people would think that that's excessive. Would you agree? They would say, $30 on a bottle of scotch? What are you, crazy? I yeah. spent $5 on a bottle of scotch. So we have to know where we're at. I'm not saying – I, I don't know. I don't know where people are at. I don't. I never spent 300 dollars on a bottle of scotch. I don't even know what type of bottles. Of I mean, I'm at. You know, I could guess, but so, but so, there, there, do, should we spend ridiculous amounts of money? What's called ridiculous? That that very much just depends. My point is that that I think everything really has to be done with seichel. Uh, if if we understand that thirty dollars is not excessive, what is called excessive is hundred dollars called excessive. That might depend on what people are used to. What's con- what, what became the the norm. You now, I'm going to give you an example. I'm tell you it's. I'm, I'm using the example in the backwards way, but I can tell you the example. I one time had a bachur. This is before we opened the yeshiva. I was involved in another yeshiva, and he was he was in he was in a dorm with he was in an apartment with other bachurim, and he was and he was talking to me about the excessive expensive these bachurim were, were spending. The, the bachurim were spending ridiculous amounts of money. So I I met with these Bacharim. They are not my Talmidim, but they wanted to meet with me, and they were discussing the fact that they were spending too much money. One of the Bacharim told me that he flies exclusively business class. I said to him, did you ever do a stitch of business in your life? Did you ever work like once? What are you in business class? You don't even know what business is. So I was hocking him about the business class, and he said the following thing to me. He said to me, can I ask you a question? Because I fly economy. And at that time, I never in my life flew business after that, you know, I, I I never paid for a business class ticket. Anyway, I fly economists. He said to me, would you fly with the luggage? I said, no, I wouldn't fly with the luggage. So why not? He, he said, because, because that's a necessity. He said, for me, business is a necessity. I, it's, not, it's not a luxury. And I told him that I think it's very sad. I said, so in other words, you're not necessarily more comfortable in business than I am in economy. I'm like, okay, this is normal. So for you, what has become normal is business class. And you, for you, a luxury would be into first class. It's like, yeah, I sat in first class and this and that. He's telling me all the stories, but, but, but business has become an assassin. And I, but, but I think that he is accurate. Now you might say, how did we get there? That's a good question. But how did we get to $30 bottle of scotch? Why, why are we at that? Why are we not at a $15? Well, you could still get scotch for $15. I don't think it tastes that good, but you could get it because th- these are certain things that have become normal. So I don't know what the right thing is to put in a shear if you're going to have a shear. And again, we're talking about people not getting drunk or a kiddish. What do you have to talk about a shear for? Talk about a, Or a kiddish, whatever it is, whatever is considered to be the norm in the society is not, I, I don't think is a problem for us to, to be doing that. Should we try to scale back and should we try to make what's what, what's considered our uh, our necessities or our norm something that's a little bit more modest? I think for sure. I think that would be that would be beautiful. But if someone's going to have, let's say, uh, lunch and learn and he's going to serve like a uh, fancy sushi. So if that's acceptable, I'm using sushi. I don't want to get into cigars because, you know, I don't know. Uh, about smoking and cancer and that I, I don't want to get involved in that but let's talk about you know gosh that doesn't have a uh, you know a uh, uh a health issue to it and and, and drinking smaller that That so anything that's already considered to be this is what people would be appreciate as not something way beyond uh, the norm for their community
0: i think is fine Right, so so when you see boys come to yeshiva, and let's not talk about your yeshiva, we'll talk about other yeshivas, and, and they come from these neighborhoods, or they come from these shuls, and they have parents that are going to the business class, or the first class Kidushim and they have the first class uh, simchas and the like, but what's the impact that it has on, on the boys, and what's the, what, what's the impact that you see in how they come to yeshiva and live their lives here in Eretz Israel?
4: You're, you're talking specifically about Eretz Yisrael. You're talking about in general.
0: Oh, well, we can talk either way. Either
4: way. Yeah, I, I think you know, if, if you're talking about their lives, um, it it it, really, it very much depends on a lot of uh, of uh, other. Um, it depends a lot on a lot of variables. What I mean by that is, there are people that that uh, clearly recognize that, uh, that there's there's emptiness in this lifestyle. And they clear that, that that it's not it's not leading them anywhere uh, because they've seen it. They've seen, you know, especially if a person there, there are people that are always trying to get to the top and then there's people that are on the top. Someone who's on the top, a lot of times they realize that the marriages aren't good necessarily. People aren't happy. They have all this money, but it doesn't do anything for them. So there are children that, that, that um, are looking for something else because they realize this is not going to make me happy. And then there's people who are trying to get to the top and they're still like, desperate to do that. And, uh, they, and they perpetuate that lifestyle because that's something that that's the values that they, that, they, that they were instilled with is, you know, this is what we're trying to reach for. And uh, it, it does happen, but, um, but the, the Inishina Neshama is always receptive to, to understanding, to finding meaning and purpose Something more than that. They're always every every Yiddish and Hashem is receptive to that. If the parents themselves they appreciate and they admire and they' what they would like to see from their children is to become a Ben Torah and to become a Tamil then that def, that that Nakuda, not leaving out you know the Gashmis or the that Nakuda is the most important thing, I think. You know, and a child becoming a if he knows that it's what his parents want from him. So then, that that's something that, and um, the, the, what's going on around him, especially when he's in yeshiva, uh, can can kind of like uh, slip away and become less relevant.
0: Right. So, so that that's the messages from the parents, and obviously being a good example from the perspective of a Rosh yeshiva. What do you tell your talmidim? throughout the year, at the end of the year, at the end of when they're leaving yeshiva, in order for them to maintain who they are and to stick with their values? What are some of the messages? What are some of the sfarim you teach them? What, what's the process of from a chinuch perspective of, of keeping them on the right path?
4: So there's, there's two different things. Uh, one thing um, is, is an extremely important message, uh, which I try very hard to drill into my Talmidim, which is that is that even if, if we're looking from a a pure perspective of Olam haze, looking from an Olam Hazek perspective. What a person is looking for is to be happy. A person is not looking for comfort and a person is not looking for pleasure. He's looking to be happy. You can have so much pleasure and be depressed. What does that give you? Nothing. You can have so much wealth and be depressed. And what does that give you? Or you can be stressed or whatever else it is. Nothing. So we have to remember that even in an has a perspective, my end goal is to be happy. What is going to make me happy? And I tell them the following muscle from Elia Lapian, beautiful muscle. Elia says that there was a father who was, he was, he was not well. He was not well. And he, he needed a lot of medical treatment. He had a young son and they wanted to protect the son that he shouldn't see his father in such a terrible state. So his father had, in his room, basically had a hospital. He had doctors coming in and out. He was hooked up to machines. He was taking lots of medications. And, you know, they thought it'd be traumatic for his son to come inside and to see his father that way. So they never let the father in the room. All the kid would hear, his son would hear, is this beeping, there's beepings inside. You know, those are the machines. And they'd see people constantly going in and coming out, lots of, and he wondered what's going on in his father's, but they wouldn't let him in. One time, as one of the doctors was leaving, The door is still open and the son snuck into the room. And there he is, comes in his room, sees his father, he's on his hospital bed. He's got IVs hooked up. He's got machines hooked up to his heart, to his pulse. There's machines with graphs. There's bottles with pills and then there's liquids and there's nurses that are on top of him and doctors. The son's looking at all this. And he says, Tati, you have so much stuff. I'm so jealous of you. You got so much stuff. You got hooked up to this machine and that machine. is like this is fabulous. And the father said to him, son, don't be jealous of me. You, Baruch Hashem, don't need these things. You don't need them. You should, you should realize how lucky you are. If a person can be happy and doesn't, doesn't need that stuff, so then what are we running after? Because what, 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 I, I, I need this to be happy. So that makes a person uh, um, happier. If I'm happy with what I have, be happy. All we have to do is find a way to be happy. And running after all of this stuff is not necessarily, what's going to make us happy is good relationships. What's going to make us happy is purpose. What's going to make us happy is when we feel like we're accomplishing. None of that stuff is going to make you happy. So that's one of the things that I um, that I uh, try very hard to instill in my them And of course, it's easy to forget because you get caught up in the rat race. And, and I tell them, there are three things that are super important. The, the, it's really one, but it's, it's, it 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 it, it itself a veck. It, it is, expresses itself in three ways. It's Torah, because Torah is what's going to make us happy, right? Torah was given for us to enjoy Torah, to, to have simchas satayra, That's avas hat-tayra. This is, and a person has to stay connected to his learning, and. Part of the way to do that is through davening. Now, davening is also connectivity; is staying connected to Hashem. And people have to daven. And I don't mean coming to a minion. One of the problems that I think that we have now that I'm, you know, I'm here and I, I, I'm, I'm in the year for my father, and Kaparos Mishkavoy, I'm davening for the yomim, and I'm 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 constantly being rushed uh, because the davening there's like it's it's very regimented and and all over I seen this universally like there there's the people are just in a in a very big rush when it comes to davening and. I applaud the no talking during davening movement. With the yeshiva, we, are, we ourselves also very much encourage people not to talk during davening. But what happens is people are so it's they're they're so pressurized not to talk during davening. So let's daven as fast as we can so we don't end up talking. But that's not davening. So part of the movement has become and should be not just don't talk during davening, but let's understand what we're saying. Let's let's daven for real. Let's. Let's, uh, let's express ourselves to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Let's connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu because that is what's going to keep us connected and it's going to help us in our learning because you can't learn, the Gomorrah says, without davening. So we, we need to be able to, to invest in our davening and, and, and put time into the davening and into the learning and into having, keeping a relationship with your obeying. person has these things and he feels good about himself. He's not, he doesn't need that stuff doesn't need it. And then, you know, whatever Hashem graces him with, whatever he has the opportunities, it becomes a luxury. What that bacher was telling me that for me, business class is a necessity. He's not even happy with what he has. It's, it's It became a necessity. If a person is happy with his life, then all these things are luxuries and he feels blessed. And it's nice to have, the, Hashem gives you the ability to have luxury. So then beautiful, you can enjoy that but if a person has purpose and meaning in his life, he doesn't need this stuff. And then he has real happiness.
0: Right. Very well said. Very well said. Just on the on the, on the Kavana, I remember Rav Gershon Bess in Los Angeles saying to people, you're going to daven anyway, so you may as well pay attention to what you're saying. Yeah, I, I agree
4: 100%. But with the problem that I'm seeing now, they're not even dominating. I mean, they're... It's it's the, the the speed is is staggering how fast people are doing it and I understand the idea we don't want to talk during davening so let's go as fast as we can so no one has an opportunity to talk there's no there's no time to talk but there's really no time to daven either
0: Rabbi Center if you ever need an amud come to us at the, the Neitz Minyan in uh, in Shul and Netzach Yisrael we'd love to have you every day it's about Almost an hour. Kriyaseturo were longer, so we'd love to have you. Thank you. I
4: dive in yeshiva. I'm a little bit the boss over there, so I can... yeah.
0: Just in case something comes up, you know, we we, okay, we, thank we, you. we be happy, happy to have you. Rabbi Spencer,
4: it's important. I'm sorry I interrupted. I'm sure I, I don't mean to make broad sweeping, you know, condemnations of anyone. I'm, I'm sure there are minyanim where and everywhere where you know people can dive in slowly with kavana. But what I meant was, it's not when I said it's across the board. I don't mean it's a one particular. Group of of Yidden or one particular culture. I see, like in like in all cultures, that there is some places where people are in a rush to daven. Yeah, go ahead. I'm
0: sorry. Right, absolutely. Well, Rabbi Sender, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I've learned a lot, and uh, obviously, let's keep our our uh, heads in the game, heads in the learning, heads in the davening, and uh, that really brings us real menucha. That really brings us menucha, and it's, it's as you're, as you said, it's really the rat race that. That distracts us, and somehow we have to continue to keep uh, focused on what's really meaningful in life.
4: I just want to tell you, Ari, that from what I'm seeing, um, there is a revolution happening in, Ert- in America. Um, there's, and not just America, often, but I, when I say America, it's you seeing uh, balabatim who are really applying themselves to their learning, but successful balabatim, and they're becoming very public, like Elie Stefansky who has his Dapiomi sheer and he's a person who was, you know, there in the the, the thick of things as far as you know being a successful businessman sully bornstein sully greenwald there's a lot of them now that are coming and they're spending their days learning and there's no question that it's clear that this is what they're showing people this is what makes me happy i had all that stuff and something was was missing now i'm spending hours of my day and they're not making money anymore, maybe they're making some, but that, that's no longer their focus, and they so they have been great role models, and I think that there is a shift that's happening where people are realizing, like, you know, I need to put my focus on my neshama, I need to give myself something that has purpose, and then whatever Hashem sends me, I can enjoy in a whole different way.
0: Penierable. 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 Thank you very much, Rabbi Sainz, really appreciate it. Thank you for this chus. Joining us now is Rabbi Moshe Walter. Rabbi Walter serves as the Rav of Woodside Synagogue, Ahavaz Torah, and is the Executive Director of the Rabbinical Council of Greater Washington. I think he collects smichas because he has a number of smichas from various great rabbinim, and he's also the author of three books— I actually have a couple of them myself, and they are excellent. One is the making of a halachic decision. One is the making of a minhag. And the third is the making of a mensch. So we are very well-rounded here. Halacha, minhag, and also being a mensch, Ben Adama Haveru. Rabbi Walter, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Shalom Aleichem, Rabbi Masman. Thank you for inviting me to talk about this very important topic.
0: It is a pleasure, a pleasure to have you. So a- as you know, we are talking about uh, specific areas and broader areas of uh, living an ex- exotic lifestyle, overindulging, and we're going to get into the uh, halakha, shkafa. and I-, I wanted to start out, this is something that I actually saw when I used to live in the United States a number of years ago, I'm not going to mention what city I used to live in when I saw these uh, activities because I lived in a few cities. And uh, there were a bunch of uh, men, Gverium, that used to go and take uh, men's club, men's only vacations. And it could be to places like Las Vegas, Atlantic City, or it could be places that don't have the gambling, the gambling meccas, but places like Aruba and other exotic locations. And if somebody came to you and said, Rabbi, or if a wife of somebody came to you and says, my husband, Rabbi, wants to go on a vacation, a few of his friends to these locations, what are the thoughts that come to your mind, the concepts when you analyze, is this a positive thing or is this not a positive thing?
3: It's a good question. And we certainly are seeing a lot of very exotic types of places that a person can uh, vacation in today. Uh, I think anywhere from Alaska to South Africa, Dubai, Abu Dhabi and beyond are all par for the course today. Uh, And I think a way to really address this is by figuring out when a person is going on vacation, is the vacation for an escape or is it to recharge? Vacations are very important and they're critical. Human beings need to break; they need to be able to relax. That's critical and that's important. The question is, what am I doing when I'm going on vacation? Is my purpose to run away, like Hazal say, I'm yil and I'm being a different person? I'm colloquially throwing off my yarmulke and forgetting about who I am and where I come from, or is the purpose to recharge and to try to connect and to see the big, beautiful world of the borei olam? If that's the point, then there certainly is importance in taking vacation to some of these places. I know many. People have traveled to uh, safari and many people have gone to cruises in South Africa. And people have even come back from Abu Dhabi and Dubai and are just amazed by what they've seen. But if the purpose is to act inappropriately and to lose yourself and to run away farther from where the big city is and your surroundings, then that's something you really have to question. I, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story or not, but they say, Rabbi Shimshon for Hirsch hersh Pasof Traveled from Germany to Switzerland. And that was not an easy trip, you know, several hundred years ago. And Talmudim asked him why he was going out of his way to go on such an ex- extraordinary and weary what we would call today an exotic and lavish trip. And he had supposedly said that when I come before a Qadosh Baruch, I'll have to answer for many, many things. But what will I tell a Qadosh Baruch when he asks me, Have I seen his Alps? So again, whether that story is apocryphal or not, I don't know, but certainly there is an element to seeing the world and being able to appreciate the wonders of the world. But if a person is losing himself or herself by going places and doing things that are inappropriate that you wouldn't do in your own surroundings, then that's something you call an escape, which would be wrong, as opposed to recharging, which would be appropriate.
0: Ah, very, very good. So how about the magnitude of when you go or go away? You know, for example, you can do it low budget, medium budget, or you can uh, go high budget with a very high end tour group and they roll out the, the red carpets and you go in the limits. You know, what, whatever the indulgences are, would you say there's a difference between them or is it just a matter of if I'm going to recharge, I can uh, I can recharge uh, on, on uh, you know, on turbo as well?
3: I think it's a good question. I, I think, you know, the Mesiel Sasharim says in the beginning of a Sefer that a person has a in life. We have challenges of poverty, we have challenges of wealth. I think historically, Klaalisol has been challenged by extraordinary poverty and difficulties with lack of money. I don't think there's ever been a generation in So where we're seeing such extraordinary wealth. The amount of gashmis and overindulgence, you open up a magazine and a newspaper, you see big pictures of, of vacations for Pesach and, and meat and food. It's it's enormous, the amount of things that we have access to. The door that we are living in is a door that's the sign is absolutely going to be one full of Gashmias. And I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is how are we doing with that? Are we overindulging? Are we filling ourselves up with Gashmias to the extent that we're really losing control of our wallets and our pockets? And that's something that we really have to take seriously. Again, if a person can travel to exotic places, and do something that's unique, different and interesting. Some people do that for a 25th anniversary, for, for a family reunion after 40 years. So there is a time and place for everything in life. But if a person is regularly, routinely doing things that are above and beyond and that are different, then I think that's something that we really have to check ourselves and ask ourselves, how are we doing when it comes to a generation where there's a lot, a lot of money in our circles, in our orbit, in our communities, and people are spending frivolously. We have to think very carefully how we spend the money. And Tzchaim bemoaned the fact that people never, ever asked him how they should divvy out their money appropriately and correctly. The halachas. How you give stuck to where do you give tzadka, and how should you spend your money? Properly, If we're set spending foolishly uh, on vacations and foolishly on food and foolishly on clothing, that's something that we really need to be checking ourselves very carefully about.
0: Uh, so what you're saying so far is uh, in deciding there are really two major principles. Is this an escape versus is this recharging? You know, that's that's uh, question number one. Question number two is, even if you're going to recharge, but don't go overboard. It, I think you, that's would, correct. Would you say this falls under the uh, umbrella of the Raman famous to or Are we talking a hashkafis issue, or are we talking maybe a halachic issue? If it's, if it's a naval bishu satar, or something like that?
3: I, I think both are true. You know, the Mishnah says and it's in the Tavkov regarding right, the midst of Simcha's Yamtev, that a person can often spend money, but it has to be spent on the right things. person who's spending inappropriately during the course of the week. That's not the way that the Torah charged us and demanded us to use our money. We have to know how to use our money and how to spend money. There are halachas, how do you spend money? You know, there's a certain amount you should spend and you can spend. You should spend some money on, on Torah education, but there are certain things that you shouldn't spend on. And Chabetz Chaim has a letter where he famously decries people who are smoking cigarettes and are spending enormous amounts of money. It goes through a, a mathematical algorithm after 10 and 20 years of somebody smoking, how much money they've wasted on smoking cigarettes. So a person has to think carefully, how am I spending money? What am I spending? money on? And what am I teaching my family and my community and those around me? Because we live in a world where everybody sees what we're doing. And it's a generation where if you do something, I need to do something. And therefore, there need to be people are stepping up and saying that this is not appropriate. This is out of the pale of normal. And this is not what should be done. And how to spend our money is something that's critical. It's something we learn in our homes. It's something that we see from people who are around us and we have to watch and we have to ask and we have to think and we have to contemplate because everything we do is being watched, not only by the Boreal but by people around us.
0: Right. So so along those veins, let's say there's somebody who makes a, a a significant amount of money. He has he has he has a large parnasa and uh he likes to go away. He likes to spend but he gives Meiser. he gives Chomesh He gives Chomesh He maxes out, and there's a machlokis between the Ramon Sholchanorach. Is it a maximum twenty percent? Is it not a maximum twenty percent? Let's say you say Ashkenazi, and he maxes out Chomesh Are there still going to be limitations? Meaning, you can, you can. Use your money for what you need. You can spend extravagantly. You can give tzedakah and you can save. Are are we going to cap him as to what he can save? He's already spending. He has enough for his his house and his his, his uh in his car, and he's giving chomesh and he's got a lot of extra money. Are we going to tell me have to save the rest, or or uh, is he allowed to spend it on himself?
3: So look, there's no question that people with more money are going to be able to do more with their money than people who have less money and could do less with their money. There's no question about that. Now, between me and you, those people aren't going to ask that question. We're talking about it. But many of those people, because they have so much money, they don't know what to do with their money. So Baruch Hashem, they're giving enormous, enormous amounts of stock up. But there are people who are living very, very comfortable, solid lives who are using their money wisely, properly, and appropriately. To tell somebody who's giving millions upon millions of dollars that he can't go to travel to an exotic place, I don't think is fair. I mean, but at the same time, I think that person has to be honest with himself. I am a role model. People are looking at me. And we know people, I think me and you both of us, who are making enormous amounts of money, giving enormous amounts of stucky, but theoretically could go to a casino and blow $100,000 in an evening. You have to ask yourself that question: Is that appropriate, or is that not appropriate? And that's a serious question to ask, and it requires a sheilas chacham. Simply blowing a hundred thousand dollars in Las Vegas in an evening, I think, is a sheilas chacham. I don't think there's a simple way to say that that's absolutely okay. Somebody who says that, yeah, that's okay, I have a hard time with that.
0: Right, right. I also, we would say if it's an Asher Muflug like that, he's even according to the Rama, he's not going to be capped. Akronim says he's not going to be capped at Chomesh. You can exceed. That's for sure. So, That's uh, for sure.
3: Nobody's going to argue if he wants to give more money to Staka.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. We're not going to cap cap you at 20%. So along sure. those lines, let's talk about some of the halachic issues of going on to vacation. So you mentioned gambling, casinos. So uh, it, how, how do we posken when it comes to gambling, casinos? The guys like to go to Las Vegas. They like to go to Atlantic City. When when I asked you the question initially, I mentioned Las Vegas, Atlantic City, and, and you mentioned if you're going to go to the Alps, etc. those are places that you're not going to gamble and they don't have the uh, the Tuma associated with the Mecca gambling capitals of the world. But how about the, the Vegas of the world, the Atlantic cities of the world? Can you go there? Can you gamble? Can you invo- get, involve yourself in those activities?
3: So there are Paskins that one is permitted to gamble as long as you're not doing so professionally. That's the and Dharma. He writes, uh, that there's an ancient Minag that that was the, what was done, and that's... That's what the Ramah says. Mamela, the post post the Ramah, are divided into various different camps about how to handle that. Because you can't assert, you can't say it's prohibited to gamble. when the Ramah says that the many guys, you can as long as you're, as you're not doing so professionally. I will tell you that there's a letter and several letters from Sof, or the Lachsam Sofer, the chuas um, from many G'dol Israel, who point out that they never ever assert their communities from gambling because how can they do that? Not only does the Ramah say that the Minigas, you can, if you're not doing it professionally, but moreover, uh, R. Moshe writes this in the tshuva, uh in the chuvas of the Salmas Chaim, he writes this, what else are people going to do? Uh, maybe they'll wind up speaking and hara during other Dvar Masurim. This at least is mutter. Let them go and enjoy themselves in a mutter dika ofen. So that's fascinating to consider from a Hashkafic perspective, as well as from a Halachic perspective, that there was a group of G'dolei achronim Adahi who say that they will never, ever tell anybody, community members, Balabatim, that it's us to together because they may wind up doing something worse. And if this is mutter, and the Rama says that the minig is at its mutter, you may do so. That's one school of thought. Mishibur and the and Hilchas Hanukkah point out that there was an old minig to, to gamble on Hanukkah, and they actually decry not the minig of gambling on Hanukkah, but they use that as a stepping stone to talk about gambling in general. And the HaShulchan and, the and, the and the speak in very, very passionate terms that it's something we should stay very far away from. Shomer, Nafsho Yarkik, I think that's the Lashon of the Mishibur, if I recall correctly. So that's another base measure of Ashkenaz that seems to say that that's not the right thing to do. A third school would try to limit it to certain times of the year. There's a Tshuva the Chavaziyah, Rabbi Ay-Bachach of Germany, who writes that a person should gamble if he wishes during the eight days between December 25th and January 1st. Anyway, people are home. Anyway, people are on vacation. So that's when you should gamble. That's what he writes. So it's clear that there are very different approaches amongst people. Postgim of postki Ashkenaz, for sure. For Sfardim, the sack of the Mechaber based upon the Rambam, is really that it's asr, whether you do so professionally or recreationally. Um, but nonetheless, we do see that there, there are different approaches in the postkim about gambling for recreational purposes. There are different uh, ways to take it. One thing that I will mention, I think, is critical to note is that the Rivash, one of the Ba'alei and in the chuva writes, the gambling he sees, Rabim Chalalim Hipila, quoting the Posik in Mishle, that it's brought about many, many downfalls for people that you could start gambling 10 cents to a dollar to five dollars. Before you know it, you might wind up stealing and robbing and being over other issues and engaging in other prohibited behaviors. So it is an addiction. It is something we should watch and be careful about because we don't know where we'll leave. Many people say, I'm just going to gamble for one time, one day, one. And before we know it, then we know the stories of people who've gotten themselves in a lot of trouble, just like one cigarette and one, one joint and et cetera, et cetera. People wind up getting in trouble. So there are a lot of different things that need to be taken into account.
0: Right. Now now that's talking about the activity of gambling. Can you gamble? Can you Not Campbell. And I would assume that the Ramon, the Sam Sofer, who were not overly negative about it, were assuming that you're in a proper environment. You're at home. You're not heading out to Las Vegas, Atlantic City with the uh, entire environment. And uh, when you're at the tables and you have this cantily clad uh, waitress come up and uh, the whole environment there. So let's assume for now that uh, there may be a basis to be lenient on a one-off on gambling, a terrible thing to do, but but Asr Asr, as you said, at least some of the shitas. We're not going to say Asr Asr. But how about in the environment of Las Vegas and Atlantic City?
3: So just there like their halachas of entering a makom sakana. You know, in Choshem Mishpa, we talk about there are places that are prohibited to enter. You can't go under a uh, sulam ra'ua, coastal ra'ua. There are dangerous places that you can't walk and travel because entering such places have the potential for amneshmartim olas shasechem. You have to watch your physical body. The same thing is absolutely true when it comes to your good to your neshama. You know, like the Chazal say the, the Mishnah avos A person's surroundings are critical, and where you find yourself in the company of people that you are amongst are critically important to a person's success and health. As you noted, if you walk through a hotel in Las Vegas or Atlantic City, it's not a place for a, a good Jewish boy. It's simply not a place to be. It, the it's environment not a place
0: for a good boy. You <laughs> yeah, that's Jewish.
3: Sure. <laughs> no question about that. And our society promotes it. And Government promotes it and, and and states are making millions and billions of dollars on casinos. So we are fighting a big, big machine. However, we need to be smart. You're entering a dangerous zone. You're entering a dangerous place. And the minute you walk into such a place and, you know, you could go to Atlantic City or to Las Vegas. I think a the room there for a night is what, 15, 20, 25 bucks. They're smart. They catch you. They know that the minute you're in there, they got you. And they figured out the psychology behind it. They understand that a person is being sucked into a very, very dangerous place. It's a makam tumma, it's a makam of taiva, it's a makam of all of the Gimel Chamuros from and Gilerayus and Avodah Zarah, they're all all there in one. And a person has to be very, very careful. What's the hether to go to such a place? So yes, there are business meetings and there are conventions. And sometimes you're required and you have to. There's a shail of Mamadus and there's a shila of, of, of Parnasa. But even those situations, you have to think how you're going to deal with that and how you're going to approach that situation. Maybe you don't have to go. Maybe you could find an excuse not to go. Maybe you could play sick or maybe you could stand up and say, I'm not going. But to choose to go to such a place for a vacation, why there? Go to uh, go 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 to go to a beach or, or, or go skiing. Why do you need to go to a place where you're setting yourself up? It's a trap. They know it's a trap, and they're
0: creating a trap, and you're setting yourself up for disaster. Right, right. That, that makes sense. So, what, what what are your thoughts on? men's only vacations. And let's assume that it's not going to be in Atlantic City in Las Vegas, but uh, the guys, the guys going out, will we'll get a keg of beer also. Maybe we won't get a keg of beer. And it could be a... A skiing trip or, or something along those lines. I, I, I had personally never heard of this concept till uh, till a friend of mine and he's, he's a good friend and they're not doing anything wrong. But he says every year the guys go out. If he's doing it, it can't be so bad. But, uh, you know, but the guy going out and it, 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 obviously there's going to be a spectrum here of you know, a day trip, fine, you know, the guy's going out. Or are they going off to Switzerland for a few days? Or are they going off to Atlantic City for a few days? Or are they taking a private plane? At $25,000, $30,000 a pop and going off to uh, whatever location it is to sit on the beach for a day. So so one of you, your balabatim comes to me and says, Rabbi Walter, I'm, I'm thinking of going. And, and what are your what are your thoughts on this? Or it's more common, maybe would be the wife of the, of the, of the man who's thinking of going. And what, what do you say to them?
3: Yes, we're not talking about a few guys going to the Miryach Eikala. That's not what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that would probably have, we find a hetzer for that. (laughs) I mean, people even ask me about
3: going to yeshiva for Yom Kippur. You know, uh, a husband wants to go to yeshiva for Yom Kippur. He wants to go uh, away for uh, a week to learn in yeshiva. So that I think is called a spiritual business trip. And just like a wife understands that her husband needs to go away for business. He also needs to go away for spiritual pursuits also. That's one question. And w- there's a time, there's a place appropriate for that based upon one's family situation. When it comes to a guy's only trip for fun, so you're talking here to somebody who has very strong opinion about this. So I, I have a sincere problem with this. And let me share it with you why. Parashios uh, HaShavua, the Makos, there's a very interesting and fascinating, I would call it even a cryptic dialogue that takes place in Moshe Rabbeinu and Paro. In Parshas bow after the Makkah of dever, so Arbe, I apologize. So Paro indicates to Moshe Rabbeinu, you know who should go to be over as a baruch hu luchuna ha ki osam tem of action. Let the men go. That's who needs to serve a kadosh baruch hu. Moshe responds and says, No, 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 not so fast. We're going to go b'nareinu v'skeineinu lech bivoneinu bivoseinu lech kichag shaman We're going. Everybody, men, women, children, we're all going together. What's the debate? What, what are they talking about? I mean, Parr says only the men should go to bring the carbonos. Marsh says no, no, we're all going, the men, the women, the children. What's and it's back and forth over and over again. Take a look. The Klayaker says something very, very important, and he explains that there's a philosophical Debate that's taking place between Moshe Rabbeinu and Paro. Paro is saying that the only thing a Kadosh Baruch Hu wants is that the men should serve a Kadosh Baruch Hu, the women and children should stay behind, and that's the way religion should work, and that's even the way that the family system should work. Men should be separate from their families, from the women, their children. Moshe says, You've got it all wrong, Para. That maybe is the way that you and your world and the world of Avodah Zara see the family system. Moshe says, When it comes to Chag, when it comes to celebrating, when it comes to Yomtev, it's everybody. Everybody, we're together, we're a family. I can't bring a carbon without my wife, I can't bring a karbon without my children, I can't bring a karbon without my family being together. When it comes to a yumtif, when it comes to a chag, when it comes to Pesach, Shurus, and Sukkot, it's a yumtif of a family, it's a mishpacha coming together. I think this applies not just when it comes to youth, when it comes to a vacation. A vacation is a family opportunity of bonding. It's an opportunity to create memories. It's an opportunity for families to be able to be together in a context that's more relaxed. And it's an opportunity to be together as a family where we're able to do things that we can't ordinarily do. And that fun and that enjoyment creates a very, very significant bonding situation. What am I telling my family? when I'm going to have fun without you. I'm going to go have fun with my friends. I'm going to go have fun skiing because that's what we want to do. What am I teaching my kids? You go to school. What am I telling my wife? You go to work. You stay at home. I'm going to go have a good time and you go about your regular day. How does that work? That maybe kids could do. Bachram could do that. But a family man is saying that I'm separating from my family to go have a good time to me is the most inappropriate form of modeling as a husband and as a father. It means that I can't have fun with you. It means that I can't get in the car, I can't get on a plane, and I can't do something together as a family because we have kids that are two, that are six, that are ten, and are fifteen. And it's not going to work. I'm not going to be able to go on the black diamonds because you have to go on the greens and the blues, and I can't go in the deep uh, end of the pool or in the ocean because I need to take my. How does that? work? How do you explain that? A family means that a parent, a father, a mother are responsible. They have a chryas. They're a growing person. And if I, all of a sudden, I'm going to go back in time to when I was a kid, to when I was a bucker, because I can't have fun with a group, I think it's a very poor form of modeling. As a husband, and as a father, I think we're leaving a very, very poor message for our families as to what this does. We actually have uh, neighbors where we live who every year the husband goes with his friends and the wife goes with her friends. And my wife and I look at ourselves and, and, and we tell our children that this is the hefech of, of, of what the Torah teaches us, what a family is supposed to be like. If he's going with his friends on, 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 on canoes and hiking and she's going with her friends to relax on a beach, so we've separated ourselves. We, we're divided. That means I have my life. You have your life. I have my friends. You have your friends. And the kids don't play a role in that. It's a very, very poor form of modeling. It's a poor approach to how we should develop and grow together as a family.
0: That's a, that's a very powerful message. It's a, it's a family unit. Family unit. Absolutely. Together. Unit, unitary Absolutely. together. R- Rabbi Walter, as long as we have you, is it okay? I, we, we had a show it's, it's really not exactly the subject matter of this show, but it certainly relates because if we're talking about luxury and we're talking about extravagance and we're talking about vacations and the like, and, and, and we didn't get into the halacha on a number of areas that I'm wondering on. So can I, can I keep you another few minutes? Is that okay? Please, please, okay. please. I'll try my best. Okay, so so we talked about vaping and smoking and drinking alcohol and and, and getting shikur and the like. um I'd like to ask you about each of those specifically, but before we do, that is something that we are seeing in society. It's something that we're seeing in the yeshivas. We're seeing it. I assume in bala I, I live in israel, but i I do hear that we're seeing it uh in mass as well with the balaaba team So I'd, I'd like to take you to get your take on what's going on in these areas in particular.
3: Okay, look, this is a hard topic, a difficult topic. Um, I think rabbis, psychologists, therapists are, are deeply involved um, with an enormous growth uh, in drinking, in drugs, uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, internet addiction. All of these things are real. They're happening and they're, we're surrounded by it. Um, there's a very, very powerful true, which I referred to as the, the rivash, as well as a very, very incredible note that the Sefer Achinuch makes in the Lav of Losa Suru. And both of them explain that once you're involved in a certain behavior or activity, call it drinking, call it drugs, it's leading down a very, very dangerous road because you're hanging out with the wrong people and you're doing that. You're doing things that are often illegal, inappropriate, and wrong, even though we're starting to see that it's becoming permitted in certain states, at least marijuana, which is going to make things even more complicated. But we have to recognize that we're involved in one of two things. Number one, it's reckless behavior often. It's dangerous behavior. The Post can point this out. The Post can note what's true when it comes to smoking cigarettes. It's true when it comes to smoking pot. It's true when it comes to drinking in excess. These are things that we have to be very careful about because number one, it's dangerous behavior, and number two, it's going to lead to other addictions. These things are all correlated and connected. If you start gambling, you're going to drink.ing is connected to that. You start drinking, drugs is connected to that. You start with drugs. Everything is related in the world of addiction, so you need to be very cautious and careful in all these areas. That's certainly the case. More than that. There is a time and place for everything. So you can't compare uh, having a l'chaim and drinking on Shabbos and Yomtev with smoking pot or with smoking cigarettes. Each of these have their own complications and difficulties. Certainly, there's a place for drinking. You know, the Torah talks about it. We all know about it. There's Purim, there halachas, Shabbos, there halachas, yom tif, there halachas. But when you see somebody drinking excessively at a Shabbos Kiddush, you have to ask yourself, what in the world are we doing? How is this happening? What are our children seeing? What are our family and friends seeing? I have one word when I see that. It's pathetic. I saw once in my shul, somebody got drunk at a kiddush and it was an absolute busha. It was a disgrace ad ain cheer for his wife, for his children, for the shul, and for this person to walk back into shul knowing what he did. It's pathetic. That's the only word to say. And I told that to many people, including my children. It's pathetic. It's wrong. It's us -er. Perm is a different situation. So they're halachas. There's also inappropriate behavior that takes place in perm There's also inappropriate behavior that takes place in Simchas Torah. But everybody has to understand when that is. You know, Chazal take Noah uh, to task that after he left the table, he planted a vineyard. So Rashi said he made himself chulin because there is a place for wine. But but what are you doing after the world was destroyed? So we have to ask ourselves that question also. What are we teaching our children? What are we teaching our families? And our behaviors are critical. Ramosha famously has several chuvas regarding smoking cigarettes as well yeah, you know, as marijuana. You know, you know-
0: before we get to smoking, I, I just wanted to go back to, to you know, quorum and Simchas Torah. You know, quorum there is a deen to get drunk, which I personally don't do, uh, but ever. But, but uh, you know, Simchas Torah, I, I remember hearing a story about a neighbor um, when I was growing up there that he he uh, actually disappeared Simchas Torah night. They didn't know where he went. He was drinking a lot, disappeared and didn't come home at night. And, and the next morning, in in Shul, and they open up the Aaron and there he is inside the Aaron Kodesh. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, even when we may have a deen of drinking, which we don't on Simchastara, but we'd say the same on Purim, I, I would assume it still has to be uh, proper, in control. Absolutely,
3: Absolutely. A- everything... In life has to be with a balance. Everything in life has to be with equilibrium. There's no such thing as extremes. We're living in a generation of extremes. We spoke about it you know, a few minutes ago regarding overindulgence and extremism and extreme behavior on a variety of different areas. It's true religiously, it's true politically, it's true emotionally, it's true across the board. Living a balanced life and being a normal person is is a chiddish today, that, that you could do things that are balanced. We have to be balanced human beings. It doesn't mean that there's a hetter to wait all year on Purim to get shikar. I mean, that that's absurd, that's ridiculous. Right. And the same thing is true, Sam But Chazal understood that that there is an element to drinking, because that's why duchning is placed in Shachas and Simchas Torah, not Musaf, because we do know people are going to drink. So Chazal understood that there are human beings that need certain things. Like we spoke about in the beginning, there's an L- aspect of recharging and there's an aspect of escape. You have to know when and how to do different things. And it takes time and it takes thought, and it takes yishuvadas, and it takes Mesorah
0: to be able to appreciate all these different things. Right, so so let, let's get into smoking and marijuana. I, I I I think at least what I'm saying is uh, there's a lot of smoking going on. I, I can't say that I've seen a lot of marijuana going on, but that that's at least in my Dalit Amos. But I assume that it is going on in in other areas. Vaping you see all over the place. There are special vaping stores in Mea Shaarim and Gaula. I've seen pictures. Uh, um, one of my daughters was just a, a, away for Shabbos in in uh, it's, it's for on a Shabbaton, and uh, they were staying in in a yeshiva and. And she saw up in the sign in the yeshiva, somebody said, I just uh, received uh, a delivery of 2,500, uh, I don't know what the, the, they call the, the vapes. I don't know what they call the, the contraption that you smoke from. So, so uh, you know, come and get it now, buy it now. Um, so w- what's the contemporary current C-scale p- lacha when it comes to smoking and marijuana? Walk us through, I guess, so historically, Rav Moshe, the famous shuva, and, and And what are we saying now that we know that it is indeed deleterious to one's health?
3: Look, certainly we've seen a change, as you noted, from the post-game, from the time that the Surgeon General came out and taught us that smoking cigarettes is is dangerous, deathly, and uh, cancerous. So uh, Rav Moshe's position was to be a little bit more lenient and to be makeable about it. He understood that this was something that people were doing and that they did start already, therefore he couldn't tell them to stop. He writes in a later Chuva, 1981 Chuva, that people who didn't start shouldn't start. And slowly but surely we find uh, that Rav Moshe certainly took a more... Um, a, a, a hesitant approach and a more of a machmir position as more facts came out. I will refer you to two very fascinating anecdotes. Uh, Chavitz Chaim, well before uh, the Surgeon General, in the early 1900s, as well as the Chazanish, both of them have letters where they write about the danger of smoking that there already was a sense in the early 1900s that it was a problem. To the great Gdole Yisrael, the Chavitz Chaim and the Chaznish, both were very cautious. Chaznish writes in a letter to his brother-in-law, the stiper, be careful not to smoke, it's not good for your lungs. And the Chaznish uh, understood medicine, as did the Chavitz Chaim, and both of them are very cautious and hesitant. But as you noted, after the 80s and the 90s and the turn of the century, when it became very clear in the medical community that smoking cigarettes um, was a very, very significant health danger, um, G'doli Yisrael, uh, across the board. Wrote letters and tshuvas, signing them that this is something that should be not not be done. Uh, there's a famous letter that came out of Eretz Yisrael, uh, signed by Biliashiv, Rabbi Leib Shtayman, from Moshe Shmuel Shapiro, from Mechelhudalefku, it's from Sim Karel, it's from Shmuel Arbach, if I remember correctly, namish, from the Giants of our door. The previous generation of saints, it's aser It's absolutely positively prohibited. So you're talking about the the the, the greatest, the gonim, the the, the g'doli Yisrael. Rav Osner has a tshuva which he dafka printed at the end of his ten halakim of. Shevet Alevi, where his final piece that he writes is eight or nine reasons why smoking is prohibited, physically uh, dangerous, as well as all the other kilkulim, things that we've spoken about, the, the extreme taiva that's involved, the, the physical danger that's involved, uh, kiddoshim tihiyu, you're, you're, you're touching on all of the inappropriate behaviors of a Jew are all part and parcel in smoking a cigarette. And I understand that this will irk some um, and it will make others very, very happy to hear that, that the Gadol shall have said this, but it has to be said. It's a danger. It's understood that it's dangerous. Chavitz Chaim said uh, that we know that you're losing minutes of your life with every cigarette that you're smoking. How can you do such a thing? Mechitesi, Kodesh gave us a guf. He gave us a, lungs. He gave us the, the ability to breathe, eyes, ears, nose, and the throat, uh, a, a full body. We don't have the right to damage our body. Body. And that's true both with cigarettes, it's true both with uh, with, with marijuana. If we're going to be mechalcular deaths, like Moshe writes in his Truven there regarding marijuana, if we're ruining our brain, if we're ruining our body, our thought process, our cognitive ability, our emotional ability, our ability to think and to be human beings, there's no heter for such a thing. And not only does it lead to other Yisurim, but in and of itself is a problem. Moshe writes of the mevat the of Kedoshim Tiyu. If you're a child, he writes, you're over the lava of Kibur of, Avaim of because your parents are going to be upset about it. And it's a taiva lashem taiva. So rav Moshe is very clear marijuana. Um, hesitant when it comes to smoking cigarettes because it was still early on. But I think contemporarily, I, I challenge you, Rabbi Wasman, to find me a, a, a gov will Yisrael, a, a rov or a rebbe who will get up and say, it's mutter to smoke a cigarette. I don't know one, I don't know if you do, um, but in the world of, of cigarettes and pat and, and alcohol abuse, I challenge anybody and anybody who's listening, if you could find me a a, a, a Talmud Chacham of notes who in print or who orally will state that any of these things are permitted, I, I would I would be very very, shocked and surprised to hear such a thing.
0: Well, we can make that that riddle of the week then. We can say uh, today's riddle of the week. I will ask the editor now to play the music and see if anyone can find a gadol hador, one of the gadolim, that may be the machlokas, who you call a gadol or not, uh, that is here smoking and or marijuana, please send it in. We will publish it on the website. Okay, so
3: if I could share with you a story, Rabbi Wasman, R- Rav Strombach and his Chuvas, van Hagos, writes about Godel echad. I believe I know who it is, and I, there's discussion about who this Godel is, who was sick in his old age and was given about a month to live because his lungs were extraordinarily blocked and looked damaged beyond repair. And he was told that he has somewhere between 30 and 60 days to live. This gadol asked that a minion of Talmidei Chachamim come to his house. And in front of this minion of he he said, he stated, and it's in for Strombach's Chuva that he knows I know when I get to Shemaim, they're gonna judge me for being a ma'abid Atzmaladas. I'm I am i am committing suicide, and I've committed suicide as a result of smoking, and I know the dangers, and I know everything that I've done, and I'm coming in front of this bezdin of ten to say that I'm mischarit and misvada. I am regretting, I'm doing chuva, and I am confessing for what I've done, and maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe if I do this and people understand and here, maybe on some level, there'll be maybe there'll be somewhat of a small uh, antidote for the sin that I've committed. So we're, we're talking about serious behavior. I'm not saying anything on my own here. I'm quoting you from Godola Yisrael. You could re- learn, you could see the truth of the de Levi. You could read uh, Rabbi Yecheskel uh, Yischaik in his book Chaim uh, Briam, quotes all of the Dasa, the Gedolei Yisrael <laughs> from uh, across the spectrum. Who are very, very clear at the turn of the century that this is something that's wrong, that's prohibited. I think one of the greater challenges we're going to have now is now that uh, states are permitting. Not only miracle, medical marijuana, but uh, marijuana recreationally. And what are we going to tell our tell me them What are we going to tell our communities when the government and society around us is celebrating this and saying that it's okay? The answer is that, that's Torah tells us, it's not okay. It, it, it's it's taiva. It, it's 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 bizayon. It, it's it's acting inappropriately. It, it's, it's 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 acting in the ways that Klal Yisrael and Yidin are not supposed to behave.
0: Yeah, there, are, there are a lot of Ashkafas practices, uh, things that are permitted or endorsed by governments nowadays, in particular in the United States of America, on the two coasts, California, and New York, that are totally antithetical to Torah. So we can't defer to the secular norms in order to say that something would be permitted. So we have covered... A lot of ground here. We talk about uh, vacations and boys only vacations, extravagance, gambling, smoking, vaping, drinking, et cetera. What are your final thoughts? What's, what's your must message or, or whatever it may be um, to, to the CBER that's listening in here?
3: Look, there's a lot to talk about, a lot to think about. I'm sure we could speak for hours on this topic. Um, but I think we need to think about dealing with changing expectations in our door, that there are things that are rapidly, quickly changing on all of these topics. I remember as a kid, you know, if if a classmate went to Florida, that was seen as like something that was out of the, out of the ordinary, that was extreme. You know, if somebody during winter vacation would go to Florida or to, to the islands, that was seen as something that was, you know, beyond spectacular. I think today, you know, a kid will go to Florida two or three times a year. I mean, we don't even think twice about that. So, we do have to appreciate that things are changing in terms of norms, mores, and normal but at the same time we have to appreciate that we still have certain expectations there are certain things that are permitted there are things certain things that are prohibited and we have to give our families a good time because our neighbors are having a good time and our family members and not nuclear family are also doing things that we may not always have done but we also have to do what they're doing also because we can't be hermits and we can't hide and we have to face the reality but at the same time we need to be strong and we need to be proud of who we are what we do and we're a bumper that this is what our family does. And this is what we're proud of. And you could have a good time without spending enormous amounts of money. I could tell you probably our greatest family vacation that we ever had, which was probably the cheapest was we went to New Hampshire and it was the greatest vacation. You're, you're outdoors and you hike and there's water. There's nothing greater than that. You don't need to spend money to have a good time. And you don't need to spend a lot of money to have a good time. There are ways to play. There are ways to have fun. There are ways that your children can enjoy the world that we live in without having to go to Las Vegas, without having to go to Atlantic City, without having to go to Aruba, without having to go to Abu Dhabi. You don't have to get married in Abu Dhabi either. You could do plenty of very wonderful, enjoyable things. You could relax. You could have a good time. You could go on vacation. The Torah wants us to have a good time. It's supposed to be fun. A Torah life is enjoyable. It's kishmak. It's, It's good. There's nothing better. There's nothing greater. We live a great life. And we say every single day. There's nothing that we need that we don't have. We just need to think about it before we do it. And we have to appreciate what we're doing. There's no reason that a person has to ruin his body or his soul to have a good time. There's no reason a person has to travel halfway across the world to have a good time. I'm not saying they don't have to travel across the world either. But we have to think carefully, cognitively, and spiritually to feed our neshamas and to feed our goof the things that they deserve and make sure we return our guf and our neshama to the borei olam, whole, wholesome, and leaving behind dore doros of people of generations that saw that the way we acted was a tremendous, tremendous Kiddush Hashem.
0: So, so what I'm, I'm gleaning from that is is the bottom line, enjoy, enjoy properly, but don't go overboard.
3: That's correct. That's correct. And you know, sometimes just because something is mutter doesn't mean it's you take it to the extreme, like you pointed out, you know, (laughs) not everything that you can do means you should do it. Just because it's permitted to gamble doesn't mean you should gamble. But just because it's not also to gamble doesn't mean you shouldn't. You got to be smart and, and a healthy person who is working with people and who has a solid family and has a Rebbe understands that life is here to benefit from and to enjoy but use your seichel and be a role model and don't be a copycat.
0: Right, I, along the same lines, maybe a little bit different, but along the same lines, I once heard uh, a well-known Rav give a psaac about something. I don't know what he was asked, but his psak was, even if it's mutter, it's usser. So, so sometimes <laughs> sometimes we're going to say that as well. Even if we have a shikta that we can say, you can have this, you can have that, maybe you can gamble. But even if it's mutter, use a little seichel. Maybe it's really usser.
3: Well said, well right. said.
0: Rabbi Walter, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you
3: for the invitation, Rabbi Wassman. Great to talk.
0: Joining us now is Nick. Nick has tremendous exposure and experience in the work world. He actually has an interesting blend of experience, both in the Jewish and non-Jewish worlds. He's very familiar with a number of Jewish individuals, Orthodox individuals in the Orthodox communities, he has worked at a gamut of companies, uh, from very large companies to uh, very small uh, entrepreneurial companies, and he is here to give us a realistic, real-world view of what goes on, either at corporate events, drinking, etc., or conferences, conventions, business trips, and the like. Nick, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Hopefully, uh, we'll have some good insight and. Uh, anecdotal stories that'll keep everyone entertained, but also uh, educate along the way, and uh, you know, shine a light in uh, the dark corners of sometimes what occurs in uh, the type of events that we're going to discuss.
0: right. Terrific. So, Nick, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, I just want to frame the conversation. I I thought it'd be a little bit difficult to find an observant Jew to come on and speak about the realities of what he's experienced out there in the uh, secular world, um, in certain aspects of the secular world. And I know you do have that, the the exposure of seeing Orthodox Jews out there. And and, uh, that's why I'm delighted to have you on. There are going to be rabbis on the show as well. I won't ask you to decide the Jewish legal aspects of what we're talking about, but more the, the reality of what exists out there. And, and what really inspired this, there was a, uh, a a text that went around, somebody sent it to me of a woman who was unhappy with uh, some of the, uh, I'll say activities, or maybe antics is a better word, the antics of her husband and his friends. And, and some of the things that she listed out here are they have a barbecue and sit in the hot tub in the backyard smoking hookah. I personally had to look up what hookah is because I, I wasn't sure. I'm not sure. I'd never heard the word before. So I looked up hookah. So that has to do with uh, smoking, possibly illegal substances.
1: Legal or illegal. You know, people use hookahs uh, for, you know, smoking, uh, you know, quality or, you know, eccentric types of tobacco, as well as anything from marijuana, hashish or whatever else. So I can't attest to what she's referring to or what they were smoking in that case, but I am not a participant uh. Regardless.
0: Let's hope that it was legal what they were smoking. And and, and then she goes on to lament uh, the uh, tremendous amount of alcohol that he and his friends drink. And then, and then this is the clause that is most relevant for our conversation it says I also um it says and his friends go to conferences for a couple of days in the gambling meccas in the world so you know we have smoking hookah we have alcohol we have gambling what is not on this list is is women I guess that's one area hopefully that they were clean on or either the wife had not found out about it so you know on, on a on, on a broad level that's what we want to discuss what's out there what's the reality if somebody is going on a, a business trip a conference convention what's really going on and and, and before we go out of town let's talk about in town you know because that probably happens more often company events corporate events business events so you know what can happen i assume there's a whole spectrum and some have alcohol some and don't so why don't you give us a lay of the round a lay of the land of what goes on there
1: sure i feel like this uh you know secular sailor that uh is going to be sharing, you know, all of the all of the, the, the evils and vices uh, that are available. But I'm happy to do that because I've got a little bit of experience in that area. So, you know, when you when you're not at a convention, right, and in, and in general everyday life, whether you know you're 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 Orthodox or you're Armenian in my case or or anything else, um, you know, you, you're dealing with single or married people, and uh, uh, regar- regardless of that status or what your marital status is, you know, the temptation lurks everywhere. And, and in some cases, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, if you're single and you're out and about and you're socializing and meeting people, um, you know, you have a cocktail and it, that brings your inhibitions down so you can engage someone because you're nervous, you know, that's door A. But then you've got door, you know, B or door Z, which is, you know, you're married, you're in Las Vegas, uh, you're drinking too much, you're at a work function, you um, you're tempted and, you know, you cross the line. So in a, in a, in a environment, like, uh, your, your town or your city or the area that you live in, um, you know, you're interacting with different people all the time. You notice them, they notice you, you know, it's human nature to, to be attracted to people. And at times you may notice, and, uh, in the normal course of a day, you just file that away. It's in your subconscious, and you go on to the next thing. Whether you're at a gym or a restaurant or or anywhere else place of worship, it can be anything. Um, but as time passes, depending on what else is going on in your life, um, if you have friction at home, uh, if you're not getting what you need from your spouse, whether that's physically, intellectually, spiritually, um, emotionally, that there's a void there. And I think that when people are out and about, and you you, you notice somebody else or you've been cocktailing or whatever that may be those temptations that the, the, those desires in, increase or the thoughts increase it doesn't just immediately go back into your sub- subconscious that it's something that you think about now which I would call a, a temptation now you know that doesn't mean that you don't go out and do anything um, I think it means two things one you need to address your issues that you have within the parameters of your uh, life or relationship whether you're singular what you're married. You know. What makes you happy within and also within your discipline? Of what are you allowed to do? And the next part of that is when I'm facing te- temptation, what's my way of dealing with that? So when I'm, when I'm in my hometown and I'm picking up dry cleaning and I see some attractive woman at the dry cleaner, it's pretty easy. I'm getting my clothes and I go back, jump in the car and I come home. But if I'm at a restaurant and they're sitting at the next table and they engage you and there's some intellectual banter, that's a little more difficult because now the window is bigger. Um, if I'm in Las Vegas and I'm there for five days and this person works for a company that my company's engaged with and I'm eating with them, I'm cocktailing with them, I'm walking through the hotel hallway with them, uh, the potential consequences or the likelihood of a, a negative outcome that becomes greater.
0: Now, now, you haven't mentioned alcohol very much. So that's interesting to me. You're, you're saying these ri- risks exist independent of alcohol, but they are, I guess, magnified when alcohol is involved.
1: Yeah. I think alcohol and potentially other drugs, um, but let's just stick to alcohol for, for this part of the conversation. It lowers inhibitions. You know, it changes people's ability to make judgments. It changes motor skills, thought process, everything else. For the same reason that somebody doesn't want you drinking and driving, you are making different decisions. There's a young man on the, on the Las Vegas Raiders, the NFL pro football team here in uh, the United States. And last weekend, he decided to, you know, get his Corvette up to 158 miles an hour on a city street and struck a young woman's car and killed her uh, and her pet. Um, the impact was 127 miles an hour. Now, this is a 22, 23-year-old young man who, you know, one of the best athletes in the world, highly compensated, great reactions, uh, has to exhibit Emotional control on the football field from being very violent during an American football play to stopping when the whistle blows, and then the intellectual process of what's the next play, and then formulating what he's going to do and lining back up and doing it again, repeating that process. Clearly, when alcohol was in his system, he was twice the legal limit, he made bad decisions. Now, when you have decisions that have much less kinetic consequences, such as, boy, I may expand that conversation that I'm having with the young woman on the table that's next to me because my inhibitions are down um, or I'm not thinking about consequences because alcohol changes my ability to make quality judgments. Now you're starting to, to, to make choices that the consequences are there and you're not thinking about those consequences.
0: Now, now that exists at company events, corporate events, when there's alcohol there as well. You don't have to go out of town for that.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, uh, you take a local, if you, if you work for, let's say a local tech company, And uh, they are rolling something new out. And there's half a dozen potential clients. uh, There's half a dozen vendors. And there may be people involved with who's catering the event or the entertainment or anything else. And, you know, alcohol is served at those events. And it's a matter of, uh, you know, when I was 22, 23, 24 years old, you're always looking for an opportunity to have fun, um, especially when you're single. And it's very easy to overindulge because everything's free, everyone's cocktailing you can't necessarily count the number of glasses of wine you've had because someone's refilling your glass before it's empty. And the next thing, you know, now your judgment's reduced and boy, I'm having fun, having a good time. This lady sitting next to me is attractive. We're both drinking wine. You know what can happen next? So.
0: So let's change the venue and let's go off to Vegas, Atlantic city, and throw in, I guess, the gambling, which is the big difference there. Maybe there are other places as well, and, and the environment. Talk sure. to us about how that differs or is the same as, as what we've been discussing.
1: Sure. You know, when uh, you're at your hometown or in a local venue, uh, it's almost, I would, I would liken it to having one piece of candy sitting on the table. You go to a local restaurant, there's an attractive server, you might have a glass of wine. You, you eat, you get in your car and you leave. There's people that you know that are walking around. So the consequences are fairly obvious of what's going to happen or what could happen. And you're also exhibiting reasonably good judgment because you're there for a relatively short period of time. If you've consumed any alcohol at all, it's a relatively small amount. And you're only there for uh, one side of every week or two weeks or whatever that may be. Now, let's flip the switch over to Las Vegas. You fly into town. You're out of your environment. There's no neighbors or friends that are lurking around to potentially uh, observe your behavior. So, uh, you know, you can tell a good person from a bad person usually, or bad judgment. Let's put it that way. uh, When it comes to finance or business decisions, etc., when they're when someone's not looking, what decision do they make? So, when you're in Las Vegas, you're in an environment where nobody's going to know the decisions that you make, and all the other people that are there—at least many of them that are there—you um, know have a, have lower the threshold. People say what what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas, and you know that's true to a certain point. But now you're immersed in this thing. Instead of having one piece of candy sitting in front of the counter for a finite period of time and it goes away, there are Skittles and Hershey bars and Snickers and Twix bars, and they're everywhere. And they don't go away and they're calling your name and they're flashing in your face and you're awake for a protracted period of time. So, you know, you go to a convention in Vegas. You're usually there with other people of, you know, from your company potentially, or maybe not in other companies. Um, Everyone's dressed up. Everybody's coming and leaving their regular life and no one's regular life is perfect. We can all try to craft a perfect life, but there's all always desires uh, and things that you would like to have in your life that you don't. And there are things that may be in your life that you don't want to have. When you go to Las Vegas, you're able to leave all that behind. Um, you're not sitting there with a pack of $100 bills when you're playing blackjack. They give you chips so that you don't see the money flowing out of your hand. Um, what do they do? They reduce your judgment by bringing you free drinks while you're playing blackjack. You think you're getting free drinks, which you're basically I mean, The casino doesn't have all of this beautiful billion-dollar facility and uh, the electric bill that's probably you know a million dollars a month because all the people are winning when they're gambling. So- you know, when I lose a black or win a blackjack hand, the lights in the casino don't dim because they lost a thousand or two thousand dollars. So the point is everything there is designed to reduce your inhibitions and everyone's inhibitions are being reduced at the same time. And you're immersed in it from one, two, three, four, five days. Uh, the least fun thing in Las Vegas is when you go back to the hotel room, unless you're really tired, because what's going on in the hotel room? There's a television. There's some M&Ms that you can buy for $50 and your shower, your bed, and that's it. And once, usually when you go to bed, there's no live sports or anything on. So do people want to be in their room? No. Where do they want to be? Where all the lights and the excitement and the glitz and the glam and small dresses and the big heels and the alcohol is flowing and then live music is on and the, it keeps you awake and you know, off you go. So I think that the, the intensity of temptation is greater. The number of temp- the temptation is far greater. And there's people that go there just to have a good time. You know, it, 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 I'm, I'm an Armenian Christian guy, but you know, I'm single. So when I go to Las Vegas, what am I doing? I'm watching football. I'm playing blackjack. Um, I may have a couple of cocktails. I'm engaging with uh, people of the opposite for sex in, in discussion or having a good time. You know, you're observing all different things. And when you are seeing and experiencing things that you're not used to seeing and experiencing. And then you infuse alcohol into this. And now that period of time that you can fail in your decision-making becomes a longer period of time with inhibited judgment and all this temptation, it's tough. It's
0: tough. Walk us through the, you, you work, worked with some Orthodox Jews. Um, have they been at these events and what were your experiences with them? Were they more able to control themselves? Did they just stay fully away from these activities or, or are they prone to also uh, indulge in, in these activities?
1: Um, you know, I would say my, if if I were to stereotype um, collectively, Orthodox people that I've observed, and this isn't scientific in nature, have behaved themselves um, better than secular people. Not that secular people that go to these things and are out of control, but people have seasons in their life where it can be a marital issue, it can be work stress, financial stress, they've got young kids, whatever it may be, where their desire or, or their uh, the need for some type of distraction is greater. So I'll give example. As I had a business partner, we he would would never have chosen to go to Las Vegas ever um, for a vacation, but we were required to go there because there were conventions there. And conventions usually occur at these places because there's many you know places to meet. Meeting rooms, hotel rooms are plentiful. Uh, people like to go there, uh, at least in the secular space. But when there would be events, drinking, eating, shows, parties he would send me to go and, you know, he would go and have dinner on his own and go off to bed.
0: So an Orthodox guy?
1: Orthodox guy. Right. And, and he would just keep putting himself in a position to win, meaning to stick to his principles and to reduce the amount of temptation around. And I don't think he truly had a desire for that because he managed the rest of his life well. So he didn't have as many areas that he was trying to escape from or desires that were you know, left. Um, you know, un- untended to. Now, I was at, a, at an event where uh, someone else that we used, a, a vendor from one of our companies, uh, our company was making a, a ton of money. So there was a line of probably 200 people into a club with 2000 people in it. And of course, we were in the VIP line. So we breezed right by the bouncers grabbed the security and took us right into the event. And uh, everyone else had to wait in line. There was a band playing and music and lights and Show girls in small dresses and shoes. And I look and there's this very large NFL-sized African-American gentleman walking with a suit jacket on. And he's holding the arm of one of our vendors who has a yarmulke on, which is crooked. And I'm like, oh my God, I think that's so-and-so. And the person I was with said, my goodness, it is. So of course, trying to assist, I approached the security gentleman and said, uh, what, what happened here? And I, I looked at the vendor and he recognized me and his eyes grew big quickly. And he said, hello, Nick. And I said, hello, what's going on here? And the security guy said to me, well, you know, he was out on the dance floor and he was being a little bit too flirtatious and pansy with some of the people on the, on the dance floor. And we asked him to stop and he, and he did it again. And he's been drinking too much. And just at that moment, he breaks free like a running back in the Super Bowl, leaps to the bar, grabs a glass with liquor in it that wasn't even his was somebody else's there drank it down and put the glass back on the counter and then of course the security gentleman grabbed him and dragged him out of the out of the facility and you know i followed and said hey we'll get him back to his room blah 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 blah, blah. and you know the disaster averted but you know the behavior occurred and i didn't see what transpired but you know he didn't make the best judgments and the next day he's like oh my god you know please don't tell anybody else what happened he's like you know i just made a mistake." I cocktailing, you know, I was blowing off some steam and, um, I'm not used to the effects of alcohol. And I just made some mistakes. And I said, Hey, we all make mistakes. Don't worry about it. You know, there's no blood, no foul. And, uh, you know, we moved on from there. Now it's a, it's a funny story, but it probably created a consternation for him. And, you know, he's also got to reflect on himself and said, why did I need to do this? Right. And why, why did I put myself in a position to fail? And no matter what, if you're on a diet and somebody keeps putting different types of pie in front of you, different cake, different cookies, different ice cream, at some juncture, if you are sitting in front of that for four days, it makes it more likely to participate in sampling one of those things than if you didn't have all of that sitting in front of you and, and uh, inhibiting your judgment with alcohol.
0: Nick, a, a final message. This is a, a uh, crowd that is uh, orthodox, very observant Jews. Uh, it could be that some of the uh, men that are listening are those that go off to Vegas and Atlantic City for for uh, real purposes, business purposes, if you can give them uh, what we call an ATSA, a piece of advice as to if they are going to these forums, locations, events, what what are the ways that they can try to keep themselves away from the vices?
1: Uh, sure. You know, and a couple of things you can do there is one, you want to set a time that you're going to leave. If the, if the thing starts at seven o'clock and it ends at, at 10 o'clock, leave at nine o'clock. You don't need to be there for all three hours. Don't get there early. Don't stay late. Uh, you're there for a purpose, whatever that purpose is, whether it's networking, uh, whether it's getting a contract signed, whether it's learning something, go get that done. And when that's done, you um, and don't stay past that other time. Even if you're socializing, you know, keeping drinking separate from business, uh, not putting yourself in a position where your judgment could be impaired. Um, those are, I guess, three simple rules. Don't drink, stay on target or stay on your mission. And then get out of there at pre-prescribed time when you know, hey, the thing is seven or nine o'clock, anything from nine to 10, is just cocktailing, glad handing, nothing good is going to happen uh, after that period of time. And if you stick to that and you're consistent and disciplined, hey, you know what? You'll get your job done. You're going to feel no guilt because you've not done anything wrong uh, and you've been productive and uh, you know trying to stay on, on target. So I, that would be my advice.
0: Nick, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for
1: having me. Appreciate it. Uh, happy to be on again. And I uh, hope that this insight was insightful and helpful for all.